Anyway, when last we left Mimic, who is definitely an X-Men character, well, he was dead. So uh, it was was not, he wasn't having the best time because he was deceased. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today for episode 103, four, we'll see, because there's been some scheduling weirdness, so it's something I'm going to figure out and post, is Chad Anderson, therapist by day, host of the Gray Malkin Lane podcast in the evenings, former Marvel Handbooks writer. He wrote the Marvel Universe Appendix entry for Candy Southern. And Celine. <laughs> and Celine. So, hey, did you write um, Amanda Mueller, The Black Womb, or was that another Universe Appendix person? No, that was not me, but I wish it was. I love when the Marvel Universe Appendix... This is a website for listeners who are not aware. It's marvelunapp.com. I think of it as the Marvel Unapp in my head. I love when they're similarly focused on like an insane character who's appeared like six or seven times. They were very helpful with the Maddie episode just because I needed someone to back up my reading of the X-Man Maddie stuff and the Marvel Universe Appendix does. So that was very, very helpful. It made me feel less insane. Jeff Christensen runs a tight ship and the comment sections on some profiles are very, very dense. Are there comment (laughs) sections? I didn't Mm -hmm. even realize. I don't read comment sections. It's not a thing I do. Um... You can't if you know enough people that the comment sections are about. It starts to become <laughs> something that you just don't. It becomes not for you. You know what I mean? It's like, absolutely. I don't want to read that. In any case, welcome to the show. I have been on Chad's show several times. Grey Malkin Lane is a fun podcast about the Silver Age X-Men stories, although you're now done with the Silver Age. So yeah, now we're in the middle of hidden... into the 70s. I mean, now you're doing Hidden Years. Hidden right Years, now. and then we'll be firmly in the early 70s. Yes. So you're doing all of this stuff between 66 and giant size? Mm-hmm. That's fun. Yeah. there's weird shit in there. There's some crazy Like the Polaris stuff. and Havoc secret empire story and like other <laughs> stuff that's just very, very strange. I just told my children, I got them all settled down, and I said, I will see you in three to ten hours, depending, because, because you never yeah, know. Yeah, well, you go. never know. My 14-year-old said, Dad, good luck, and don't beep it up, because they're not allowed to swear, but they love RuPaul's Drag Race. So That's very cute. That was my step into here. It's very exciting to be here. It's wild to hear you open the show. I'm so happy. I'm so excited. It's this is uh this is something Connor was telling me just before we recorded. He's like, you're very persistent. And I'm like, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Chad knows this. We've talked about this a lot offline. Scheduling podcast recordings is wildly complicated, elusive, mysterious, <laughs> sometimes difficult to find. Meanwhile, Chad is texting every day like, so are we good for Tuesday? And I'm like, yes, we are. I love that. I said, I'm, I'm a little behind still, but I wasn't going to delay you again because you've been so persistent and I don't want to push you I am again. so happy to be here. My schedule my schedule is such, and, I, and my, my podcast guests are always uh, on me on this for two. My schedule is very tightly, tightly, carefully planned. With the podcast and parenting and my work. Well, that's the other thing is you have kids, you have a day job, you've got stuff going on. So I didn't want to disrespect your time either, but I was just like, I can't, I've already delayed this like twice. I cannot do that to you again. 
How are you today, generally? I'm so good. Uh, the kids are out for summer. It is a beautiful day here in Salt Lake City. Uh, lots going on, but I'm so happy to be here. They're filming season four of Real Housewives of Salt Lake City right now. Have you seen <laughs> Lisa Barlow anywhere on the street? Uh, we saw her at Pride. Uh, there were Some of the housewives were hosting Pride events. I'm sure she loved that. She loves Pride. She's fine. She's everything you'd expect her to be in person, except a little smaller in stature, perhaps. Every TV person, unless they're like eight feet tall, which sometimes they surprise you, but almost every person who's on television is teeny tiny because the camera makes people look bigger. So, you know, Kate Winslet's like 4'11", and they're like a big girl for Hollywood, you know? And she's like I have, a a, I have met she and Jen, and I've met Heather... And Jen Shaw's in jail this year, so we'll she sure that. is. <laughs> have you met Whitney? I have met Whitney. Whitney is uh, I again at like Pride events. She's like very party sure. girl in her like. I love Whitney. Persona. I was cracking up. God, we could talk housewives forever. In the last we can't, and we're going to move on. I just had to. You say Salt Lake City, <laughs> and unfortunately, like I don't want to talk about the Mormon Tabernacle. So instead, I'm talking about the Real Housewives thereof. <laughs> Salt Lake, uh, Salt Lake is a, a, a bizarre juxtaposition of uh, Mormon conservatism and a thriving, robust gay community, which is an That's what I hear, thing. but I've just chosen not to partake. Yeah, you know, I totally get it. Yeah, yeah. I'm thrilled for all of you, though. Come to Fanex sometime. It's a, it's a pretty decent convention downtown. Perhaps they will. Yeah, yeah. It's a good time. I would love to open the show, as we do, by talking a little bit about you before we get to the subject of this week's episode, Calvin Montgomery Rankin, the mimic, a character who does not super matter, by which I mean <laughs> he's a don't worry about it, right? Like he is a human don't worry about it, or a mutant don't worry about it, depending on the story. He... <laughs> He's a Stan Lee and Jack Kirby creation, and yet he's just never quite hit. But then the version of him in Exiles was very, very popular. And so in the 21st century, you see people trying to find a way to make Mimic a character who matters the way that the Exiles version did. He just kind of has that blink problem as the other big yeah. Exiles character, where it's like, that's the version we like. What do we do? He's on like a long, long list of mutants who, when you need to put a team together or create some sort of threat. Do you need a new brotherhood? Throw Mimic yeah. in there Let's because it's fun to make him fight Cyclops and they do the eye beams to each other. You know, like that stuff. Maybe we'll give him three pages of character development and then he gets punched out and we're on to the next story. Right? This yeah. time he's gay. Maybe. We're not sure. <laughs> you know, like that's sort of the the vibe. But before we get to Calvin, one of the only members of the X-Men from the 20th century who I have not covered yet, because <laughs> technically he was a member for like, you know, one issue. I would love to hear a little bit about you, about your origin story with the franchise. I feel like every tidbit you ever give me about your life is crazier than the last, but I've never had the occasion to be like, so tell us about it. Like, what's the, yeah. so you grew up Mormon in a big family. I grew up Mormon in a big family in a very rural community in uh, Missouri, in the Ozarks, where Mormons are hated. People hate them there. I was going to say, I didn't even know there were Mormons in Missouri. Yeah, there's weird, oh God, we could go on this for a long time too. When the Mormons, like, in the 1800s got, like, kicked out of different places. Of everywhere, yeah. And then right. they, like, went to Missouri because it was, like, the Wild West. And they, like, they formed, like, this big community. And it was, like, in between the North and South. And Joseph Smith was the leader. 
And uh, they had a lot of persecution and shit, but he was also like a super corrupt guy, which I did not know in my childhood, but I know now. But he had all of these like magic revelations, like down over there in Missouri is where the original Garden of Eden was. Right, the plates and like Israel is America and the over here is where Native Americans and all of that stuff. Build New Jerusalem. Like Missouri has a lot of weird connotations with Mormonism, but there's no Mormons there. Anyway, yeah, that's where I grew up. I grew up gay in a family that had a ton of trauma in it, and I was like the social worker who took care of everybody. And we moved to Idaho when I was a young teen, and then things got worse. My mom get married a guy that like used to beat us up. So comic books around that time became like this absolute place of refuge for me. My first issue ever was X-Force number 27. I picked it up on the spinner rack at the grocery store at a little town in Idaho. And there was this world of people that I could lose myself in that had complicated realities queerness in subtext I got to go back and pick up the new mutants and then like learn their origins and then go back into the Claremont stuff and then back farther into the 60s stuff and it just became the place I got lost in for a long time to the point where in my early 20s I started writing for the appendix I was writing fan fiction and then I got recruited to do the handbooks and I was in Idaho (laughs) like working remotely at my computer for years on these various projects I pitched a bunch of books to Marvel right at the end of my tenure with them. And they said, you know, you got to go make a name for yourself somewhere else. And I made plans to, but then I came out <laughs> and I had I had two little kids and my, my production schedule for years became, I wrote a book, I wrote comics, I made a documentary and then COVID hit and I'm like, mm, maybe a podcast. <laughs> and so that's where Great Falcon Lane started. That makes sense. But just to pause you, I didn't realize this. So you had kids before you came out. Were you married to a woman? Mormons put a tremendous amount of pressure on marriage. I dated someone for six years. This is a real story. I've told this on my show before. She cornered me after six years and says, why have we never kissed? And I said, well, I'm gay. And it was the first person I'd ever told. And she goes, well, that's fine. I don't care. And so that was my first kiss. The night I told her I was gay was my first kiss. And then we got married. And I came out and we separated during the second pregnancy. So these are my biological children who are now both queer and being raised in two houses where they are loved. She and I are friends. Everything is good. It's a, it's a perfect world in the post-out. It's very year. modern. Yeah. <laughs> is she still in the church? No, 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 no. Most of my family has left at this point. I also have a gay sister and several gay nieces and nephews. There's a lot of people who've come out, out uh, around me. So it's actually a queer family at this point that's fun but i uh, i was a pioneer in ways uh which is the funny mormon context because coming out was my own pioneering experience right yeah no i i just assumed that you had had kids either adopting or through surrogacy or something i didn't realize but that makes sense given everything else i know about your back see again yeah. i'm always learning new last <laughs> time it was like well yada 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 about you know your older brother and you were like no i'm like my brother's a criminal and you're like yeah oh. and i was like oh well never mind then yeah, my, my husband and I have been together seven years, married one. Uh, so he's stepdad. And... So he's a stepdad. That's yep, interesting. Yep. Yep. And life's fun. Yeah, the kids are back and forth. It's a good it's a good setup. We have them half time and it's amazing. What is it that gives you such an affinity for the 60s material in particular? Because the story that you're relating is pretty commonplace. The idea of I mean, it's my story, like, you know, the the lonely gay teenager finds something they see or, or child in my case. And perhaps in your case, I don't remember what age you were, you said, but 14. Yeah. 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 Like finds this thing that speaks to them. But for most people I talk to where that's the case, it is the 80s or 90s material that really did that. At least people our age. 
the sixties material is less focused on that mutant as minority thing. So I'm just curious as to what it is. Is it because they're hiding? Like, is that? Yeah, no, I think, I, I think it's two things and I'll be quick with my answer here. When I was 15, things got pretty bad. And my stepfather, who is just an asshole, he's dead now. Good. Said I, I couldn't, I couldn't spend money on comics anymore. And I ended up going to my local comic book store and saying, like, I need comics to survive, but I can't spend money. Can I work here and you can pay mm. me in comic books? And they agreed. And within like within a few months, I was like nearly working full time and they were paying me uh, like in comic books hourly by like rate. So I started redeeming this money and I got this huge comic book collection as a result. And I think the 60s thing, I love all eras of the X-Men. But I think the 60s thing is sort of like if you saw a modern Star Trek movie and then you want to go figure out where it came from. Or you like you watched a modern season of Doctor Who and you want to go back to the beginning to see where it where it where it all started. The 60s for me, however, it's not my primary obsession. When I was considering what podcast to do, I was listening to yours. I was listening to Jay and Miles. I was listening to the ex-wife. And I thought, what is what is no one else doing? Jay and Miles and my show kind of skip over the Silver Age because there isn't, at least in my mind, as much to talk about. And you've yeah. proven that there's lots to talk about through different lenses, you know. And my initial lens was, I'm just going to have some buddies come over and we'll talk about the comics, which is where we started. And then it turned into involving professionals and podcasters. And it's kind of become a whole thing. We started doing the character trials. So uh, the show, I love all eras of the X-Men, but it's been really fun to go to the beginning and get like a really strong sense of where the company began and where it's come from. Because this is where the X-Men began, even though a lot of the 60s is nonsense. It's wonderful to see it build over time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not possible to have the 70s relaunch if the 60s material doesn't exist to react to, right? right so right. it is all something that builds on itself. And that's what I like a lot about doing this show is tracing the way the IP evolves, the way the characters evolve. And so it's always kind of funny to me to go back to the 60s stuff that's so different, even if it's not as useful often to what I'm talking about, just to be like, well, what is Hank like in the 60s, you know, and yeah. then pull that out. You take the and Beast make conversation alone, and we know now Beast is this crazy monster. And you go back to the 60s, <laughs> you read that scene where he creates the gun to make Eunice the Untouchable's powers turn against him. And Eunice is like, I'm going to starve to death. I can't eat. And Beast is like, well, you better fucking surrender you. or you're going to die. And you're like, oh shit, it was there the whole time. Or, you know, Bobby walking away in issue one when they're all like, look, well, look that's great. Me. And Bobby's yeah. like, oh, girls, you know, like, it's really fun to do the postmodern analysis of all this, I suppose. Or with Hank going back, like the way Hank reacts to his mutation from the get-go even before he's blue or furry is very much like in keeping with the kind of self-loathing beat that I think the character always has. So there's stuff like that that's very interesting. Or just looking at 60s Gene and trying to figure out what it was that Chris Claremont was so captivated by because there was something and it inspired so much of his work. But I, until pretty late in the game, find her not that because I don't find any of them that compelling. I mean, sure, that's, yeah, the, yeah. that's the thing about the 60s stuff for me is like it's not really until like the 50s in the issue numbers that it starts to get like interesting to me. Well, when Neil Adams comes aboard. Yeah, yeah, and then it gets canceled. You're so good at giving context to like the personalities on your show. Here's who this writer is. Here's what they where they came from. And even the 60s, that was the case, right? You see a lot of these different professionals moving in and out. You start to learn their stories and what they represented. 
Well, and you've had a bunch of them on your show, the ones yeah. who are still with us, which has been pretty cool. I mean, how many Roy Thomas and Linda Roy Fight. Thomas. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I was just talking about Linda Fight because we did the Necra episode, me and Jordan. So I had to provide context for Marvel's like 1973-74, like Let's Get Girls Reading Comics Again initiative with Shaun of the She-Devil and Night Nurse and Claws of the Cat. Uh, and Linda Fight was on Claws of the Cat. I then. fucking love Linda. She's amazing. <laughs> She seems like a fun gal. I've never met her myself, but always a firecracker in interviews. Mimic is a character very much in the 60s mold, and that is part of why I think it's been hard to figure out what to do with him in the years Do you since. mean mold like uh, something that shapes something or mold like the gross thing growing on the wall? The 60s mold. <laughs> <laughs> He gets his powers in a lab accident, so is a character who doesn't neatly fit into the X-Men paradigm as it will later be established with the mutants and other mutants who don't agree or human bigots. He's just kind of this other thing. He's more like the masters of evil or other Marvel villains in terms of his origin and what he does than he is like an X-Men villain. But at the same time... He's so indelibly linked to the original X-Men from the moment he shows up that it's like, well, who else are you going to have him fight? He has the powers of these characters. You want to see him fight them. Stan and Jack were writing three team books, Avengers, Fantastic Four, X-Men. And in all three of them, they create the villain guy who has all of who the powers your of powers. the heroes. Yeah, there's the super adaptoid. Super adaptoid and the super scroll for the Fantastic mm -hmm. Four. So Mimic is that guy. It's the trope of what if we have a guy that has all our powers that's more powerful than us? And then how do we defeat him? But the super adaptoid and the super scroll go on to have big histories. Mimic never really does. He doesn't because the second Claremont takes over, I don't feel like he fits. I mean, A, Claremont gets rid of most of those characters. I think he would have kept Beast if he'd been allowed to, but Beast is on the Avengers by that point, and he had no interest in Warren or Bobby, so they're out. And the most iconic thing with Mimic is that he has angel's wings, right? Like, that's the visual. So... It's fun when they're having a winged guy fight in the sky, but it doesn't, like, once Storm is in the mix, A, you don't want, like, Mimic copying the giant size team would be simply too powerful. <laughs> and it would look real it weird. It would look crazy, A, but also, like, you don't want that. You don't want that. You don't want a guy who has Colossus, Storm, Wolverine, and Nightcrawler's powers at the same time. It would just be too much. You kind of see that when he appears in Excalibur later, because he takes on the Excalibur members' teams, and you get to see him look like that. Where the Exiles version, who has Wolverine and Colossus and Cyclops' powers, they're much scarier than classic Mimic, who specifically has the 60s powers that are not that scary. Gene and Bobby become retroactively scary as they have power creep occur over the decades, but the actual powers as presented in the 60s stories are very of that era. It's one thing that they can do. Jean's telekinetic. Eventually, she's also telepathic. Bobby makes cold and ice and snow. That's probably the most powerful one. But otherwise, it's in that Fantastic Four mold of like, I do one very specific thing extremely well. 
Mimic has kind of a ceiling on his threat level yeah, when yeah. you're using just the powers of the O5. It's interesting, too. So you mentioned he has Angel's Wings. He's also got Beast's Thickness, Hands right? Like feet. his big feet. Yeah. And then he's got that giant visor that's like different. It looks like ski goggles instead of Cyclopses. Right. To keep he the also blasting. has Jane and Bobby, but he also has Professor X's powers in the first issue, too. Mm-hmm. We learn in the Exiles run, at least that version of Mimic, the way his powers are described is he takes on five different mutant templates but he has them at 50 percent strength this guy seems to take on everyone's yeah the exiles version is more balanced to be like a, a regular cast member in a book the 616 version just seems to copy whatever it's much like sync or hope sync at least usually it seems like he has to sync one at a time but then he gets to use them at their peak power level whereas mimic always does seem a little bit less powerful than the people he's yeah copying. yeah and it makes sense to take this here right away mimic's never going to be prominent in a book because rogue and sync rogue and sync and, and hope, hope summers all, all do the same better. thing and our characters people care about more yeah. and are better at it so he has that problem. Although it's interesting how their powers are all slight variations. Rogues is through touch, but she also gets your memories. Mimic takes your skills, almost like Prodigy does. That's the thing. He has Prodigy's power also. Yeah. He absorbs athletic ability. He absorbs intelligence and knowledge from people. But also maybe mental illness and arrogance. <laughs> well, right. Like he's he's just kind of a sponge. And that's where he and Rogue sync up because she has psychological side effects to her power in a way that Sync and Hope don't because of the psyche absorption that you're talking about that she also yeah. does. Hope and Sync are the two that I think are the most akin to one another. Yeah, yeah. And it's been interesting in the Krakoa era to see Hope take something of a backseat in part because Sync was getting a push. Like, I think they did the right thing with both those characters. They gave Hope a different role that another power manipulator copier couldn't do with the Five and the Resurrection Protocol, which to me, I mean, this is not a Hope Summers episode, but made her actually feel like the mutant messiah for the first time yeah, in a way yeah. that I thought really worked. Whereas Sync, it's like, okay, this is the power copier that we're going to push to A-list status in this era. I think that having him and Rogue on the same team at the same time helped compare and contrast their powers. Mimic's only real moment on Krakoa was a moment where he is used to demonstrate that Hope is special because Mimic can't do what Hope does. And he's still wearing that, that fucking terrible costume from the beginning. Oh, I, I don't mind that costume. That's the Dark X-Men one, right? The blue and white version is a little nicer. He's wearing the blue and white one in that Yeah, scene. yeah, that's, that one's a little better. I just want an updated look for him. I want something wholly original. That's fair. It does look very Warren, mm -hmm. the blue and white costume, even if it's not the colors Warren typically wears anymore because when warren goes angel mode they usually do the red and white it still just looks like brunette warren to me because the wings are such a strong visual signifier another reason mimic will never work really is he doesn't have if you look at the original x-men he knew them for a while but he doesn't have any key relationships with any of he them he doesn't know them very well maybe maybe xavier a little Barely, though. There's no key. I feel yeah. like he knows Wolverine better than he knows the other ones because of that Marvel Comics Presents story. Because he was Wolverine for a Because he became Wolverine <laughs> for a hot minute. Right. Part of it is like 
he doesn't know anyone else either. Like there are characters who started in X-Men comics and then went elsewhere, like Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, for example. But they have character relationships that we're able to like build out. Mimic is just kind of, I mean, because of the nature of his power, he's usually like secluding himself in the woods somewhere. So he doesn't really know anybody. And because Excalibur got canceled, like he clearly was going to join up, but then the book was canceled. So right, it right. ends. This is back in 1999 or 98. He shows up in like the penultimate issue of that the book. The very end, yeah. And it's interesting because then Dark X-Men retroactively establishes a bond that developed between him and Moira which I think would be really interesting now. But in terms of people who need to have a conversation with Moira, he's pretty low on the priority list, I would Absolutely. think. Absolutely. And, and another thing about original Mimic is the, the original X-Men fucking hate him. They think he's the Can't worst. Stand him. I mean, he's an asshole. Yeah, he's an absolute asshole. <laughs> yeah, he isolates. He pushes people. We later, Paul Cornell will later diagnose him with bipolar disorder. With bipolar which disorder, we'll which I think is helpful in some ways for the character. In other ways, I think it further makes him complicated to use. But like with Lorna, it's a clever way of retroactively explaining away some of the personality inconsistencies with the character over the years to say, sure. oh, it was really bad, untreated mental illness involving mood swings and emotional behavior. Like, because that can explain a couple issues that otherwise are just like, what the fuck is this about? I mean, he starts out on the page screaming, and then he has wild periods of his history where he's hiding in the woods or in Siberia. So the bipolar diagnosis makes sense. He's either manic or like very isolated. Or right? very depressed, right. <laughs> the point that I guess we're like trying to isolate is like, he's a very interesting character who has an interesting historical role in the franchise, but who doesn't feel like he's ever going to get the bump the way that yeah. sync just did for example like i don't think mimic is a character that some writer is going to one day make the star of an x-men book i don't quite see it but that doesn't mean he's not interesting to talk about i think a couple writers have tried ben rab and excalibur tried mm -hmm. christos gage in x-men legacy tried. In legacy yeah. but it's almost like you get to a point where writers have a little bit more control over what they're doing so they'll try to bring mimic in and then the book gets canceled <laughs> he is sort of the ted mcginley of this <laughs> franchise to go back to the classic jump the shark website for the old heads <laughs> the idea was that whenever ted mcginley gets cast in a show uh-oh I feel like the modern version of that, and I'm a big fan of hers, so I don't mean any disrespect. Whenever Janina Gavankar gets added to the cast of a show, I'm like, this is not long for this world. It's not her fault. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's just, you know, it's just bad luck. Dark X-Men is really the only place that does a little bit of exploration. But what you just mentioned about how he never fits and will never get a chance, that's almost what makes the character most compelling to me. Christos Gage writing him saying like, I don't know who I am. When I'm around people, I take on their personalities. I don't know who I am. And that's almost what makes him most interesting. Well, it's the kind of plot that's been explored a little bit with characters like Prodigy, but never to the extent that I think it would be most interesting to explore it. And one thing with Prodigy that makes it complicated, and Ashlane and I talked about that in the Prodigy Yeah, that's episode. a great episode, yeah. Thank you. Because he's a Black character, there is a certain, and this is also something about Sync, and we bring up the comparison there in that episode too, 
the idea that what he has he takes from the people around him or isn't really his or what you know is kind of messy i can imagine there would be some hesitation to dig too deep into that because yeah. of the optics of it but with mimic who is just some asshole white guy who looks like he stepped right out of warren's yacht club even though he didn't but that's what he looks like he's very matinee idol good looking in these 60s stories the way that warren is i think he's a good way to explore that question of like if you have a mim if your name literally is mimic like all you can do is copy other people a, who are you? And B, is there any value to who you are? And of course, the argument to make would be, yes, all human beings have value. But he doesn't always seem to think so. And that's relatable, too, in its way, right? There's three things from him in the 60s. And I know we'll talk about these stories that I think are really unique to him and to the X-Men franchise. Number one, he's the first villain that they recruit. Uh, right, which is the later story for which Wolverine is the X -Men and Rogue thing. and everything. They do it all the time. But number two, the, he's the first one they let down. Get out of here. We don't like you. It didn't work out. You're fired. And we see we see in the Exiles version what this character could have become had he stayed. But the third thing is he is the first leader of the team after Cyclops. Yes. Cyclops has demerits. And then Professor Xavier's like, I'm putting Mimic in charge. And they're like, what? But it's all really just to manipulate Scott. For sure. For sure. <laughs> this is one of Charles's early, like, fucked up power plays. And it's interesting because... Well, it's interesting because of where he pops up again in Uncanny in the 90s, which is the Onslaught arc. So, like, Charles has always been thinking about Mimic like, and how to use and weaponize Mimic. So we'll get there. We're going to do a chronology here because there's not a ton of story material to cover. Sure. Because of that, we're also, as I said when I announced this episode, going to do something a little different this week. This is the first time, I think, actually technically... The Opal Luna Saturnine episode also mm -hmm. covers Courtney Ross and Set Your Nine, but those are all characters interacting with each other on Earth 616, so yeah, it's slightly yeah. different. This episode is going to cover both Calvin Rankin of Earth 616, the mimic of the Silver Age, created by Stanley and Jack Kirby, and then also cover the mimic of Earth 12, who is one of the main cast members of Judd Winnick's Exiles. It cracks me up that it's Earth 12. It's like this early, small number. Out of all the universes, he's number 12. <laughs> That's why I love that Opaluna Saturnine comes from Earth 9. Sure, sure. <laughs> it's real early days. Like, they mapped that one early. And that makes sense that the Courtney Ross of Earth 9 is the one who would be in other world overseeing things. They had to get through over 600 more Earths before we got to <laughs> 616. It's also further evidence in my mind, that it should be 616 because you're not calling it Earth 1-2. It's Earth 12. Get it together. <laughs> Come on now. I think I say 616 and 616 interchangeably. I think no, it's just I whatever know. comes I out know. of my mouth. I'm just very... I just... I crave the ability to defend myself because I, <laughs> I recognize that canonically it's 616. So we're going to cover both of those characters because much like the Age of Apocalypse boosted the profile of certain characters, Exiles, which is in many ways a sequel to Age of Apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. It's designed to have a book for the character Blink from Age of Apocalypse, who was a huge breakout character and needed somewhere to go once AOA was over. 
much like Age of Apocalypse, Exiles uses certain characters who were not that prominent or popular in the mainstream continuity and gave them something of a boost. Or the way that they were positioned in AOA influenced how the character in the mainline continuity changed going forward. Hank McCoy is the most obvious example because once Dark Beast was so popular, it felt like almost every Hank story became at core about what is it about Hank that could have led him to become Dark Beast? Is our beast like that? And that and Nicias' Threnody story, I think that's kind of what creates the ball rolling downhill that has gotten us where we are today, 30 years later. Which is where Mimic comes in as the plot device later, because we have the time-traveling teenage X-Men, the present exactly. X-Men, and the future Brotherhood X-Men all exactly. in the same room. <laughs> Similarly, the characters chosen for Exiles got a boost in popularity that then led to, in some cases, an attempt to make them work in 616 in a way they hadn't before. Mimic and Blink are the two really obvious examples. Yeah. And the reason Mimic's in that book, and again, we'll get there, I haven't had the opportunity to interview Judd Winnick, but I did find an interview and listen to it. The reason he chose Mimic is as a kid, he loved 60s X-Men, and he wrote like a whole series of fan fiction things when he was a kid about Mimic getting, like becoming this amazing hero. And so when he got the Exiles gig, he's like, yeah, let's use that guy from my childhood. Yeah, it's fun. It's a conspicuous team, that team, right? Because... It's all characters who were either dead or irrelevant in mainline continuity, plus Nocturne, who's the one who eventually made the jump to 616. Yeah, the other book at the time being like Mutant X, which is all variations of the original team, right? Yes. This one's wildly different. This one's very different. Before Exiles, most X-Men fans were like, who's Mimic? And after Mm -hmm. Exiles, it was like, when is 616 Mimic going to matter? And the answer is, not yet to this day, but... (laughs) Hope springs eternal. I think we should just start from the beginning. Yeah. Can I introduce one thing before? Yes. My favorite thing about the 60s books is the three swinging gals at the Coffee A Go-Go. And I know you and I are similar here. Candy Southern, Vera Cantor, and Zelda Kurtzberg. And Zelda Kurtzberg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, you are a big Vera Cantor head. I, I know. love all three, but Vera is my favorite supporting character in the X-Men franchise. And she's Jewish Mimic's queen. origin. I support her. And she's, yeah, a big part of Mimic's origin story randomly. And actually, even up through Dark X-Men, a big part of Mimic's story which is kind of fascinating because yeah. I don't think anyone had, besides you, had thought about Vera Cantor <laughs> in years when that Dark X-Men story came out. Steve Fox was just kindly complaining on your show about how, um, you know, I thought he was going to tell a different story. So Steve Fox was just on and they talked a little bit about Dark X-Men coming up. And uh, Steve said that on Twitter, people were asking, is Candy Southern going to be back? Because he was saying that there were like other team members and there would be more women in the book. And he was like, oh my God, Connor, you did this. But the other thing was (laughs) when that book was first announced, I texted him so excited for you, you know, you're perfect for this book, thrilled to read it, et cetera, et cetera. But if you disrupt my complex Scott, Maddie, Warren, Candy, double date head cannons from the 80s, I'm going to be really upset with you. So <laughs> just putting that out there. And he was like, I don't think anything I do in this story will contradict your 80s double date head cannons. I was like, okay, just checking because Warren and Maddie are in the book. <laughs> 
he's great. I'm really excited about. Oh, that Steve's character. fabulous. He's he great. he he says on my show like no one who's read a comic book in the last forty years fucking knows who's knows who Candy Southern. But that is. was the point I'm making about Vera Cantor. <laughs> is like when she comes back for Dark X Men, you're like, wow, deep pull, Paul. You know, like. Mm-hmm. Not just to pull out Vera Cantor, but to remember that Vera Cantor and Mimic used to date. Yep, yep. Is just a very funny... Clearly she has a type, and it's guys with big hands and feet. Vera is one of the only parts of Mimic's origin story. It's Vera and his dad. That's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. Vera, to me, is the Velma of the X-Men. I love Candy. She looks like Velma, and Candy's not that like candy is the daphne and the empowered daphne of later iterations of scooby-doo mm-hmm. and zelda is the fred <laughs> i was gonna say zelda is kind of the scrappy like poor zelda doesn't really she doesn't bring a ton to the table but vera yeah vera has a type she loves a strong wrestler guy she loves a good who's intellect. an asshole uh-huh but also she, <laughs> she will take none of it she will not she will she will call you out she's the one that's like in the 60s like fuck you beast you keep disappearing on our dates i'm not doing this anymore yes. where zelda's like here i'll pay for everything it's fine we should note that the names Cantor and kurtzberg were assigned to vera and zelda in the marvel handbooks actually yeah mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm classic stories they're never given last names i just like that they're a both retroactively made jewish which is interesting to me about the 60s stories with those surnames kurtzberg of course after jack kirby Cantor is just a common surname i don't know if it was after anyone in specific but i like that also in contrast to gene and candy who are very much waspy landed gentry types although people have made the crypto jewish candy argument and i do find that slightly compelling anyway all this to say i dig vera i think she's an interesting character and i had forgotten about her role in the origin of mimic until i revisited for this episode because i just to be perfectly honest don't think that much about mimic (laughs) (laughs) no one does and he's not my favorite character either, but if I'm coming on Cerebro, that's the character I want to declaim. He's 60s and nobody else wants him. <laughs> well, you knew that no one would have asked. And here's the thing. Nobody had. And if you're sitting there going, oh, why didn't I ask about Mimic? Well, you snooze, you lose. But also, <laughs> please don't ask. I'm, I, have, I have so many. <laughs> it's, it's I asked and then you offered this suggestion. But I have so many people booked for this show. I can't. <laughs> Because you don't want to say no. Maybe in 2025. Yeah, I totally right, get it. Yeah. Taking it way back now to 1966, we are almost three years into the run of the X-Men. This is X-Men 19, the final Lee and Kirby issue before Thomas and Roth take over. It's Stan Lee's last issue writing the X-Men ever, I believe, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He may do some like backup stuff. He later, may do but, like yeah, a backup the, or the a one shot or something at some point. But in terms of like writing the main title, and this is like they they left on a high note because they just did the Sentinels arc. They did just did the Magneto attacks. The it X-Men had finally gotten kind of good. Yeah, yeah, like whereas the early X Men stuff by Lane Kirby, I think, is not very good. Magneto had just tried to use the DNA of Angel's parents to create an army of mutant androids at the Xavier Mansion. That was a story. <laughs> and then, sure and then here's Mimic. <laughs> I remember that one because I'm always like investigating the Worthington family and what they're up to. They're fascinating. Yeah, I have thoughts. Marvel, if you're listening, I think think there's a lot there. But anyway, we meet Calvin Rankin, Mimic, when Beast and Iceman are on a double date 
with Vera and Zelda. He walks up because as far as he's concerned, Vera is his girlfriend. Yeah, and let's just get right out of the way. Mimic is a creep in this appearance. He like talked to Vera at the library once and is now like, you're mine. How dare you talk to another guy? He's like stalking her. Well, she told him, I don't want to go out with you. And now yeah, he's Yeah, and he's like, well, you wouldn't go out with me, but you'll go out with this guy. And she's like, yeah. But he's really hot too. <laughs> that first appearance, he looks, he's like grease, like tight white shirt. He's very good looking in a way that Hank and Bobby are, like the way he's drawn from the jump is more akin to Warren than it is to the other boys who are more gawky teenager looking. Except Hank who looks like 50 always, but that's just the way he's drawn. <laughs> Yeah, he's very 1960s. Yeah, I'm going to give you a fat lip, you know, kind of stuff, which is a lot of Stanley's dialogue in the 60s, of course. No, it's Bobby who says the fat lip. Oh, thing. yeah, 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 you're right. Boy, Excuse is me. Mr. Rankin heading for a fat lip because he thinks that Vera's going to slap him if he keeps talking the way he's talking. But Mimic had gone to the library to look for a book on mine engineering. For reasons? <laughs> but yeah, we're going to learn this guy grew up all by himself. So maybe he just lacks social skills, but also in school he was a big asshole because he could do anything you could do better than you could. So yeah, he's not a nice guy. He's never developed the ability to connect with anyone. Right. He's a male chauvinist. He's a creep. He's kind of a latch. He has a huge anger problem. These explosive moments of anger. Like he needs to go to a class and get a therapist and all of that. But he's not going to do that. He is, however, stunned after he picks a fight with Hank and Bobby to suddenly see his hands and feet grow to huge size and find himself able to create ice and snow which were things he was not expecting to be able to do suddenly. But it leads him to realize these guys are not normal. Now, the people observing just think that a mutant freak is attacking these kids. So Calvin has to run away into the distance because he's perceived as the mutant. And ironically, at least in this story, we will later learn he is not a mutant. He is just copying mutant powers for reasons that we will come to understand. And we'll get into this as we go. But he's not a mutant, then he's a mutant, then he's not a mutant, then he's a mutant. As of Krakoa, he is definitively a mutant and we don't have to worry about it anymore. But literally until Krakoa, it was so inconsistent that like Emma makes a joke about it in Dark X-Men. <laughs> She's like, why is he here? We're not even sure if he's a mutant or not. Well, to be fair, Cloak and Dagger are on the team and they weren't sure about them either. But at the time they were. <laughs> this is the thing about those characters too. Is like, they also just jump. People have asked, like, are you ever doing a Cloak and Dagger? I'm like, no. I like Cloak and Dagger, but like, they're not. It never made sense when they were called mutants. 95% of their history is not X-Men, yeah. But it's also just funny because it's not like Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch where they've had to come up with a bunch of really absurd justifications for why they're not mutants. With Cloak and Dagger, the story was constantly, when the X-Men were the biggest thing in the world, trying to justify why they could be retroactively considered mutants. It was very easy when they no longer wanted them to be mutants to say, oh, they never were. It's like, duh, because yeah, that yeah. never made sense at all. This is never implicitly stated, but two things about Mimic from the beginning is he knows how to use Beast and Iceman's powers right away. And then Gene and Xavier's powers soon. Instinctively, yeah. Much like Sync. He also knows he needs Ruby Quartz right away. Mm -hmm. So he's not just taking their powers, he's taking their training. Maybe not, uh, maybe not on purpose. Maybe he doesn't know what he's doing, but he knows what he's doing right away with certain parts. 
you also wonder if maybe he's mimicking their mutant status or mimicking the status of humans because he's a mutant. Well, that's it's like it worked either way because yeah, yeah. you can like you could always justify with him that his power was doing some. I think that's what they eventually did with Wanda, right? They were just like chaos magic. Oh no, it was the high evolutionary. Oh sure, sure. Disguised them as mutants for reasons. Um, you know why not? Same thing Franklin Richards did. We can't. We can't. We can't. We can't talk about that. Uh <laughs> Mimic right away too. This is in the X Men's like secret identity era. So he realizes, oh, these guys are mutants. Right, and he recognizes them as the X Men because like the X Men have been on TV at this point because they've been saving people. And you know, one of them's a guy with huge feet, and one of them makes ice and snow it's like okay this must be ice man he tracks them back to the school well not yet he uh he he gets separated and then he bumps into gene in a cafe oh that's right gene bumps into him like pretty redhead and he goes next time look where you're going if you want a girl i'd paste you one like this guy's not nice (laughs) not nice but hot we you keep we keep making faces each other (laughs) here's the thing guys is he like an angry weird guy who's not very polite to women that is correct. Look, Brando in Streetcar <laughs> Named Desire is not a good guy either, right? But there is something about the very, very handsome, nasty piece of work that is intriguing on a base lizard brain level that I'm not proud of. There are the di- guys you date and there are the guys you fuck. And this is someone you fuck a couple times. You don't introduce them to your mother. Okay, so really problematic headcanon theory if i'm vera Cantor, i help this guy at the library and then i fuck him i'm not gonna say that to hank yeah but the way like and she's very buttoned up and and prim but i think she's secretly a freak and that's what her x-factor arc is about right yes there are later so, scenes that show her wearing like negligees around the apartment all by and herself and she goes punk in the 80s which is why hank dumps her she goes elvis costello she's got like an <laughs> art freaky side yeah so like the way i can read this story reparatively for mimic because later stories will not feature him being like a stalker or a chauvinist perv in this way is like I think it's possible to read this as Vera and Calvin hooked up. She thinks he's kind of an asshole, so she doesn't want to go out with him. And she's out with Hank, which, like, big upgrade, lady, but it seems like it to her. (laughs) But you get what I mean? And that he's pissed about that. Like, that, I think, could be... She loves a pair of thick shoulders. And... Vera's maybe most prominent story where she gets the most attention is the Peter David X Factor issue where it's called Desperately Seeking Vera, in which it's the Desperately Seeking Susan movie starring Madonna, where the button-up girl is trying to live the free girl life, and Mesmero makes her be a prostitute for a minute to lure Beast into a trap. This character is seen as the buttoned-up girl with the wild side. Now that's a character I have no interest in a reparative reading (laughs) Mesmero, that's a creep. We've done characters on my show, Character Trials, and we always give like a how much of an asshole percentage rating they are at the end. Mesmero's the only character that got 100%. He's fucking Mesmero. He's the worst guy. He's awful. No, he's like Purple Man, Mm -hmm. kind of like, I'm not a a fan of this guy. This is not a Vera Cantor episode, much as I'm sure you would love for it to be. I just, the way that I rereading this thought of it was I was like, maybe there was more going on. Because also, like, in his fourth or fifth appearance, we find out that they're dating. Mm-hmm. 
which is weird unless you go back and look at this and like obviously the intent in this stanley and jack kirby story is that he's a creep who is pursuing her aggressively i'm just saying it seems like retroactively maybe something more complicated was going on it gives him a weird motivation to want to destroy the x-men outside of just wanting to prove he's better than them which is the very first thing he does those are the x-men i must destroy them you know yes but first he tracks them all back to the x-mansion and says i should join the team because look i have all your powers i'm the best etc we get his tragic origin story which explains what he's actually after it is important to note, there is a line of dialogue from Professor X in this issue that says Cerebro does not detect him. Right. There's no new mutants around for 100 miles. So he's he's clearly not a mutant in this first issue. But something's up. So <laughs> we get the backstory. His father was a scientist working on a strange, dangerous experiment. More dangerous than any of them dreamed. But like what exactly it was, not super clear. Something chemistry oriented. He came in to ask his dad a question. It becomes clear in the flashback that his father didn't have much time for him. He's coming into the lab like, dad, can I talk to you? And his dad is just like, get out of here. You're not supposed to be here in the lab. Because he was upset about that, one day he snuck into the lab by himself when his father was out of the house and knocked over some test tubes or whatever and got covered in hissing acid science gas. <laughs> and then developed a strange ability in the years that followed as he grew into a young man. We get the story a little later about how Xavier would go to school as a kid and like automatically yes. know how to do things. This is weirdly, weirdly akin to Or no, to that's that. earlier because that's the juggernaut. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The juggernaut flashbacks. But it is like that. It's repeating kind of that beat that Charles had where Charles excelled in school because he was stealing the answers from his professor's head not even realizing he was doing it really and here very much without realizing he's doing it calvin automatically mimics the powers in a sense of the people around him so he's as smart as his teacher he's as strong as the varsity athlete who might bully him or whatever like and if that's the way you grow up he grows up arrogant because anything you can do he can do just as well but in his no, mind no, no, he can no, do no, better no, 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 no. yeah <laughs> but his mom is gone his dad doesn't pay attention to him and here he's getting all this attention at school and his natural defense is to think i'm better than everybody so there's there's some pathos to this character there's some things to care about under the surface you know eventually enough weird shit happens at school that his father figures out what has happened Perhaps he was working on something that would give you this ability. The father immediately clocks what's going on. And we never find out what the experiment was. So I don't know. But he figures it out. At the very least, he seems to have been working on some kind of super soldiery thing. Yeah. The Marvel Comics Presents story in 1990 will retcon him into a researcher for Weapon X, which I thought was a very clean retcon. I thought that that worked really well. I think it's weird. We'll talk about it. When it we is. Well, it's... <laughs> The idea that he was working on this kind of stuff, on like genetics and mutant power stuff, lends itself to him immediately looking at his son being unusually strong without working out and being like, uh-oh, he got in the chemicals. You know, like it, it adds a, a certain, that makes more sense. It would be very easy to tie this character, Ronald Rankin, into like the Black Womb Project or some of that like yes. early geneticist Black shit. Black Womb would have made a lot more sense, especially with the, you know, because then it would have tied him to Brian Xavier and that would have been fun. 
we live down the road in a cave. But the Black Womb Project doesn't exist yet in 1990 is the thing. Right. Like when they do that Marvel Comics Presents story, Weapon X is the only game in town, really, because Niciesa creates Black Womb in 92 with the Alex Reiking story. That sounds correct, yeah. Yeah, so it's right before the second mysterious government mutant research project is introduced. The one that's American. The one of 75 of them that exists now. <laughs> well, yeah, and specifically the one that every character's dad was secretly involved with if they weren't already secretly involved in either the Hellfire Club or Weapon X. That would have helped because then he would have come back for that arc of legacy, the Carrie one, if he'd been one of the Black Womb kids. But anyway... This is wonderful. So his dad builds him a base in a cave. Yeah. So his dad figures out and he's like, we got to get out of here because they're going to like torches and pitchforks kill us or whatever. So he secludes them away in a cave in like an abandoned mine. Like a zombie apocalypse shelter. So I saw like it's and food. Yeah. <laughs> So they're there living alone while he tries to figure out a way to take this power away. But because Cal doesn't want his powers to go away, his dad is like, I'm figuring out a way to make your powers permanent so that no one can ever hurt you. Because that's the thing about Mimic is when he leaves your presence, he loses your abilities. And he it's wants a temporary, way to keep temporary, right. Yeah. He wants to keep everything, strength, speed, Every, as far as he knows at this point, like human ability that you can have because he hasn't encountered any mutants yet. In a Greek tragedy, self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy kind of thing, Dr. Rankin's cave hideout that is supposed to prevent a mob of townsfolk from noticing Cal and trying to kill him starts diverting power from the town and people start to notice that and they trace it on the electrical grid and a mob with like torches and pitchforks comes to the cave. Get on the beast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I do adore, this is not my favorite origin story, but I do adore how much Stan and Jack can pack in an origin in just a couple pages and give you enough to care about. It's really strong. The way I remember this one, like I, I didn't, the 60s stuff was just not as, because I was reading that and the 70s Masterworks at the same time. Oh yeah, no comparison. 60s stuff, no comparison. But this issue really stood out to me, A, because I think I was like, who is this man? Especially once he's like Warren hot, but with Hank's bulk. <laughs> I was like, my goodness. <laughs> but, but like outside of that, this sequence is actually very much because each panel jumps you ahead in time in a way that's it's like a really good economy of page space. It takes you through essentially his entire life in like a page and a half. It's really well yeah, done. Yeah. The uh, the locals storm the cave and they set explosives. Dr. Rankin, genius scientist that he is, is like, I'll just detonate the explosives I've set at the entrance so that I can trap us in here forever and no one will ever be able to get in and we'll be safe. Unfortunately, he has just not calculated it right, I guess. He, does, he just doesn't seem especially good at his sciencing. I gotta be honest. I mean, I guess he's not a demolitions expert, but I don't know. I, I This was just one where I was like, did you just not count the number of C4 packets correctly? Like, what is going on here? <laughs> but he calculated wrong. The explosion is way bigger than it was supposed to be. I wonder if, like, any of the townspeople were killed. It's not sad, but it's, like, a question that I have. But certainly, Dr. Rankin is killed instantly. And Calvin is locked out of the cave that has the He's machine that's supposed to stabilize out. his powers. Right. 
So that's why he wants the book on mine engineering. Correct, because he wants to break into the tunnels and find his father's lab and use the machine that will keep him empowered forever as far as he knows. The reveal that that's not what it does is the twist of the issue so sorry we spoiled it but my my favorite mimic sequence ever i think is when he gets to the x mansion and he shows up and he's like hey let's talk but he has specially prepared a costume with like wing holes cut in the back he's got some ruby quartz visor ready it's orange it has a big red m on the front for mimic you see him like kick his shoes off and his feet get big he pulls his shirt off and his wings grow in and he's like fuck yeah my powers are back (laughs) my powers yes And now he's going to kick their asses. But yeah, I love this sequence of him kind of showing off like, yes, it's 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 great. It's maybe my favorite. And there is something sort of metaphorically interesting in the 60s book, which is very much about a bunch of teenagers. Like, that's the idea of it. This character who doesn't have the gifts that our heroes do. Yeah. But being near them makes him feel like he does. Like, metaphorically speaking, there's an experience of high school in this character that I think is literalized. It's a very Buffy story, is I guess sure. what I'm saying. Yeah, like, the yeah. way that this one plays out. It's actually very reminiscent of that one episode of Buffy where Jonathan the nerd gets like reality warping powers and just changes everything so that he's the star. Oh, I remember that episode. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That actor, Danny Strong, he's a writer now and he's like won 500 Emmys. He wrote a Game oh, Changer, like Julianne Moore, Sarah Palin movie. He's sure, like a yeah, yeah. Writer. But anyway. Mimic also in that very first appearance takes on the powers of Professor X. And one thing that'd be fun to see explored is which aspects of the X-Men's personalities did he take on? That's like, if he becomes intelligent when he's near intelligent people, does he become more of a jokester around Bobby? Like, does that... Yeah. Does does Bobby make him a little gay? Does Beast make him a little arrogant? Does Xavier Bobby make him a little... Bobby made him secret? more than a little gay. I mean, <laughs> he, that, that's one theory I have as to the plot of Dark X-Men. So that's what I'm getting at is if he, if he imprints their powers, does he also printed imprinted parts of their personality in the way that Rogue does it's very possible yeah 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 well because how much of mimicry like social mimicry is also something that people do you see how other people behave and then you start behaving similarly either to be part of the cool kids club in this sense the x-men which is funny because usually they're not like that's what i think is interesting about this issue is that he just wants to be part of the club but he's not a mutant like he's not gifted he's not special there's also something so white privilege about this guy where like everyone told me i was amazing growing up i don't know why you guys have problems with me (laughs) that is how it can retroactively kind of fit into the mutant metaphor as it evolves as a minority metaphor because in this story at least he's a non-mutant who feels entitled to whatever gifts mutants have thinks he's better than all of them and also that they should let him into their club and give him access to everything they have. That entitlement, I think, helps because otherwise, when you look back on it through the lens of being a mutant is an allegorical minority experience, this issue is very strange. (laughs) (laughs) But there's room for everyone at the queer table. (laughs) Well, I was left feeling, even as a child, very sad for him by the end of the story. And I think that's why he comes back in a more sympathetic role later on. Because I think the idea behind this character was that he was this entitled dick. But the end of the story, 
it's a lot like Sunfire, actually, in that way. In Sunfire's original story, is like, wow, oh, he's a real dick, but like by the end of it, you feel really bad for him, and you're like, why won't the X Men just let you stay? The other thing he uh, mimic and Sunfire have in common is at the end of both of their first appearances, they're left alone and grieving, and the X Men are K like, K bye, like have a good hey, time. Right, like, they like, just stay, like, take him home. My God. <laughs> Mimic has a uh, there's there's part of him that wants to belong that wants to feel special but it's he's desperate to do it but it also gives him this power fantasy he wants to rule the world but he's got to get the X-Men back to his cave first <laughs> right because he needs to have the X-Men in his presence to use the machine and make the power copying permanent or to dig down into the machine like he's got a it's both of those things he can't get there first they need to access it yes and that's what he learned from the mining theory book that he took out from vera i suppose he kidnaps gene and like takes her back yes. to the <laughs> back to the cave so they have to follow to rescue gene they have to follow to rescue gene gray the damsel in this this is why again guys like the 60s comics not my favorite <laughs> but <laughs> There's just very much, the thing about Jean that's interesting is like, there is always, and this is true of Sue Storm also, there is always a leading lady trying to break out from the, like from the moment, it, it's more true of Jean because they're more of a peer group and weirdly the power dynamic between Reed and Sue in the 60s does not feel like a relationship of peers, at least to me. Yeah, yeah. But also with Sue and especially with Jean, there is this sense that like, if they just weren't in 1964. They could really, like, they wouldn't be doing this. <laughs> but anyway, yes, he kidnaps Jean. She's the damsel down in the whatever. The X-Men help him dig down to his father's lab. They're like, oh, no, he's going to win. He's going to have our powers forever. And then Charles Xavier is suddenly, bop, 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 bop. X-Men, let him go touch the machine. And they're like, why, Professor? And it's because the Professor has figured out that the machine will actually take his powers away forever because that's what his father wanted to do. Which again leads to the theory that Xavier knows his dad somehow. Then Xavier wipes his mind. He takes his Yeah, mind. wipes his mind completely <laughs> so that he knows nothing about the X-Men or their secret identities. So... Fare thee well. Xavier did fucking did this to everyone in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> Blob, like, mind gone. Vanisher, mind gone. It's why in Dark Phoenix when Jean says, oh, Scott, the professor and I do this all the time. It's so good because they haven't done it on panel in a long time, but they did do it all the time. They do it in the 60s like a hundred times. You forget your powers. <laughs> you forget your name. Goodbye. Oops. Never heard of me before, have you? Like, just... <laughs> Really remarkable stuff. It is such a repeating beat from starting in the second issue when Charles does it to Vanisher. And he wipes Vanisher's mind like, that's a power wash. Yeah, yeah. Like, he took He, Blob... like, lobotomizes the Vanisher. He took away Blob's, like, you're going to forget you're a mutant and you're going to forget the X-Men. But he lets him have his identity. He fucking wipes Vanisher's mind. Like, there's nothing left. Vanisher is just... God. He's drooling in a corner. Yeah. In his snakeskin Palm Springs costume. I know. And they're all just like, and we lived happily ever after. To me, my X-Men. It's like, wow, crazy. <laughs> that one felt crazy to me even as a kid. I was like, he just yeah. he did what? There are about 20 X-Men villains from the 60s that you just never see again. Kukulkan and Grot. I mean, you see Grotesque a few times. But Mimic comes back. Mimic does end up coming back. 
Roy Thomas, I got to interview Roy, and the reason Roy Thomas brought Mimic into the X-Men is he like he's like, I thought it was a cool idea to just have someone with all their powers. And then I realized when someone has all their powers, there's less for them to do with their own powers. So I had to write them right back out. <laughs> That's the thing that certain characters do. It has been talked about as like the Thor problem, which is like with Thor on the Avengers, a lot of other characters become extraneous. It's a problem that eventually a lot of writers will have with Jean Grey. I mean, it's a problem Claremont will have with Jean Grey, which is part yeah. of why Dark Phoenix had to happen because it was just becoming untenable. But it's also why Storm being on the X-Men means that there is really no place for Bobby and Warren of that time on the X-Men. They both can do different things now that Storm can't do, but part of their character evolutions over the years were about let's give them things to do that can't yeah. all be done by one character because if you're building a team you want power diversity on the team usually if you only have five slots and storm makes up for six other x-men characters she's in addition to being so popular she's just a good choice in that sense and it can knock a bunch of people out and rogue can take turns taking people's abilities or take other people's abilities mimic was never used that way mimic from this point forward is just he has these six power sets and that's these all he powers, has right yeah although he does he does adapt banshee's powers now that i'm thinking about it he's done other things on occasion but usually when he pops back up he'll have found a plot device way to have the o5's powers back in to go back what i meant was like in the way that storm does that but that's the point of storm Mimic joining this team does that to all the other characters, and it was not the point of Mimic. Like, we're not actually replacing these characters with Mimic, so he can't hang around. Storm can stay because I'm writing them out. <laughs> like, that's, the, that's sort of the difference here. So the following issue, Roy Thomas takes over writing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. X-Men. And about a year-ish later, uh, X-Men 26. So mm -hmm. that's 1960. It's still 66, actually. When Gene's off fucking Ted Roberts at Metro College. Yes, Gene's fucking Ted, the brother of the Cobalt Man. See the Candy Southern episode for more on the Cobalt Man, maybe? I don't even remember if we talked about it because the Cobalt Man, truly a don't worry about I also, it. I also have a whole Cobalt Man episode. So. I <laughs> bet you do. I bet you do. No, notable mostly for the brother who Jean dates because it's important that Jean loses her virginity not to Scott and that Scott then is a virgin in New Mexico because it's part of his complex about Phoenix and all of that stuff. And Ted's like, hey, Gene, have you met my friend Cal? And Cal's like, I think I know you somewhere. And Gene's like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. <laughs> but then Cal privately reveals to Gene that actually an accident at the chem lab completely restored his memories and his powers, which very convenient way to just bring the character back. But also, what was he huffing that undid Charles's telepathic mind wipe? Because, frankly, someone needs to isolate that. I mean, Mimic also has Charles's powers, so he just unmindfucked himself. That's true. So maybe he just <laughs> undid it when he got the powers back. That's very possible. He decides to join the team because Cyclops is having his sunspotting fallen angels moment. He accidentally <laughs> hurts Warren in a danger room exercise. And he's like, I don't deserve to be the leader anymore. 
And so to manipulate him, as we alluded to earlier, Charles is like, well, I've allowed Mimic to join the school and he's the leader now. And it's all to make Scott believe in himself because only Scott could truly be the leader of the X-Men. It really is. It's, it's Xavier manipulating Cyclops, which he does all the time consistently, especially in the 60s. It's all subtext, but you can definitely see it there. Well, you can see where other writers later on pulled that out because it's just yeah, very yeah. there. It doesn't really work. They're not getting along. They still don't like each other. And eventually he's like, I quit. But he can't quit because the super adaptoid, ironically, shows up and they have to fight the super adaptoid. He wants to turn the X-Men into robots. I'm not super clear on what his plan is, but it doesn't super matter. He's trying to turn them into versions of himself so that he can have a family. He's like... androidifying <laughs> them. Is he an android? He is. He he is uh, an AIM experiment. This is, is not a super adaptoid it's... podcast. <laughs> I was like, he's a robot, right? Like, but like a vision style. Well, well, he's he's a combination of the cosmic cube and uh, unstable molecules, is what they say he is, which fine. is fascinating. Fine, <laughs> fine, fine, fine. Moving on. Point is, there is before the fight with the super adaptoid. There is uh, the puppet master takes over the mimic and makes him fight the team. The puppet master famously tried to control Xavier's mind a couple times in this. Well, I said famously, like anyone remembers this that. This is the puppet master from Fantastic Four. Alicia Masters' dad. He's got radioactive clay, and if he makes a figure of you, it's like his voodoo doll. It becomes and... like a voodoo doll, right, yeah. So he he controlled the Mimic. Mimic also met Banshee in Banshee's first appearance. That's right. We don't have to spend a lot of time on there. There's one key speech, I'll do this quickly, because this is how he sees himself when he's depressed. When he's manic, he's very like... I own you, like I'm more powerful than you. But when he's depressed, there's a little speech where he goes, condemned, yes, I am condemned. I'm sentenced forever to live only in the shadow of other men's powers, other men's abilities. Nothing is truly mine. Like you get this like pathos of like the bipolar stuff is there from the beginning. It's clear that Roy was trying to make the character work. Like he's sure. there for a couple issues. It just doesn't, it doesn't gel. But he is the first to join the team beyond the 05. I mean, that is the thing that's kind of significant about this character. If you're taking that Sporkle quiz that's like every X-Men member ever and you forget that Mimic is a member of the 60s X-Men, you're going to be very frustrated for a while. <laughs> we also get a couple scenes in the danger room between Mimic and the X-Men where he's so arrogant. They're just like, fuck you, man. And uh, Xavier's really pushing them. But Mimic wants nothing to do with the team. He only wants to prove that he's better. And that's when you get into number 29 when the super adaptoid shows up. That's the pathos for this character is he's very arrogant. He's ready to quit. But then he like gets a moment of heroism to end the team because the X-Men are all defeated, but Mimic like submits himself to the super adaptoid and their powers like cancel each other out. Yes. So it's kind of a Cyclops and Havoc thing, except where that they make each other more powerful. Here, it's like the feedback loop created by our powers were like draining each other into nothingness, basically. So he sacrifices himself to overload the super adaptoid and the day is saved but as a result mimic once again has lost his powers apparently forever before the super adaptoid fight xavier fires mimic from the team 
He says, Calvin, I've overlooked your insolence toward me and your constant bickering with the other X-Men because I thought you would change in time. But now I'm beginning to suspect I was wrong, that your overwhelming ego is more than the X-Men can afford. Uh, I think it best that you leave the school as soon as possible. We'll fight factor three without you. And Mimic has a moment of like, you can't fire me. I quit. Right. And then the super adaptoid fight, which is also the scene where Bobby's out on the ice like, I'm gay. Hooray. Look at me. I see. <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, he then proves that he could be a great member of the X-Men, but unfortunately, as a result, his powers are gone, so he can't be part of the X-Men. So goodbye, we've written you out. But he gets that moment of heroic proving yourself that is very different from the way it's left at the end of the first Mimic story. And his final line in the 1960s, even if the Mimic is gone forever, it was worth it if Cal Rankin became a man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess. There you go. He's then out of publication until 1973. So this is six years later. Incredible Hulk 161, which is guest starring Beast. This is a Steve Englehart joint drawn by Herb Trimp. And it is all about the Hulk, as one might imagine. <laughs> Steve Englehart, one of his first assignments at Marvel was Amazing Adventures, which he took over for the Beast Turning Blue story. And he set up some subplots there. One of them was a mysterious woman showed up and was like, Beast, I need your help. And this is where Beast is wearing the latex mask over his fur. To still look <laughs> no human, yeah. Tell. And so this is where Steve is picking up that story because Amazing Adventures got canceled. And now how now he's telling the here's why Vera needed Beast's help story. Yes, because it's Vera Cantor who was calling for Beast's help. And this story digs into that. You may recall Steve Englehart from the Necker episode. He wrote the really wild Vision and Scarlet Witch and West Coast Avengers stories that Necra and Grim Reaper were in. I got to interview Steve. He's just, he's a lovely guy. He's great. He he is not shy with his opinions. He fucking hates some things at Marvel, but he's, he was, uh, he was one of the guys that like really abruptly left when the editorial changed. They took his creative freedom away and he's like, fuck you guys, I'm out. Uh, but he, he's told some amazing stories. He's written great stuff, but I was not shy about some of my opinions on his work last time. So uh, I hope he won't mind if he- I cannot listens. wait to hear the Necra episode. I love her. She's a fucking trip, man. This is back to basics with like <laughs> X-Men again, because that episode- <laughs> You don't get to X-Men until like 2005. Before that, it's all just insane stuff. Like not just Avengers stuff, which you would expect, but like Shaun of the She-Devil and Spider-Woman and all Once that. in a while, you do an episode like Necra or Quicksilver. And I'm like, ooh, how's Connor going to take it's all this non-X shit? <laughs> well, you know, here's the thing. I read lots of non-X shit. I just don't know. Like it doesn't come off the dome the same way because it wasn't my childhood obsession. So it's like, I can tell you all like I went into a tangent about Hellcat and Tigra in that episode because I know that stuff. It's just not the place where my brain just starts going. Bzzz. Yeah, as one of your fans, I'm always just excited to hear how you're going to approach it. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> Back on topic, here we are in the Incredible Hulk. Vera has come to Hank because her boyfriend, Calvin, has a problem. So already that status quo has changed a lot for them, right? Which is, again, why I'm like going back. Maybe they kind of had a thing that she was saving face about. Like, not 100% clear because here's what I'll say. I like that notion better than I like the notion that Vera started dating a guy who was stalking her. Do you get like this? So yeah, I would prefer yeah, yeah. to think that they had a pre-existing relationship that she was embarrassed about. And that then later they like patch things up or something because that makes more sense to me. 
my headcanon for Vera, and again, this is not a Vera Cantor episode. She's the girl that moved to the big city to start a new life. And she got to New York and it was way harder than she thought it would be. And she's kind of in that depressed state. None of this is canon. I'm just, I'm just. No, I was going to say, and character. I already disagree with you because with the name Vera Cantor, that girl's from Brooklyn. <laughs> Mimic shows up and she's like, you know what? Sure, let's do it. And then she suddenly she finds herself in this kind of abusive codependent relationship where she like gives her whole life. She dyes her hair blonde uh, and she gives him her entire savings account and he like needs her. And this is like her era of like learning about her life. We all have that like one boyfriend. It's definitely codependent. I don't know that I would call it abusive. I think that he is sick. I think part of her really enjoys being like managing that. You know what I mean? Like being there for him in a in a tangible way. Sure, I, but sure. I don't know. Maybe I just read it a little differently. The thing that becomes a problem here is that his power is not only come back, but it's worse. He is latently draining energy now from the people around him. It becomes parasitic in a way it wasn't before. It's more like Rogue, in fact. He's draining from people. When he takes your strength, he takes it instead of just copying it. He's not mimicking, he's stealing. But somehow Vera is immune and they've moved to like the remote Canadian wilderness. Together. It doesn't make a ton of yeah. sense. They know that Hank is a genetics expert because Hank became famous after school and all of that. So they have sent for Hank. He tries to figure it out, but unfortunately, the Hulk shows up because the Hulk, and this is uncontrollable Hulk era, not like smart Hulk, has managed to determine that his own power that's being drained away, it's all this cabin that's like, that's where my power is being sucked away to. So Hulk shows up, Beast tries to fight him, but Cal realizes the only way is to sacrifice himself. This is a thing he does keep doing. Yeah, he's like, last time I sacrificed myself, it felt so good. It felt really great. Also, it took my powers away. So, you know, like... <laughs> That's true. And part of his fear here is he's going to start killing people. Like, I'm going to drain life off the whole planet, which makes me think he's just catastrophizing. But people have died. Yeah. We're told that people around him have actually died when his power surged. So that's why they're hiding away in the woods. And I guess Vera is just hoping that does not happen to her. <laughs> Which is, I guess, I, I mean, I, I get what you're saying now, where you're saying that it comes across. Like, is he isolating her there to keep to control? To me, it just felt very, very codependent in a way that I was like, damn, Vera, like, you should shave your head and move to the Lower East Side. Run, run away. In any case, he saves the day by jumping on the Hulk and absorbing all of the gamma radiation that he can muster, which weakens the Hulk for a time, but apparently kills Cal with radiation poisoning and Vera and Hank are sad. We do not know if there's ever a burial. It's probably one of those Marvel things where, oh, he's dead and they just walk away and leave the corpse for someone else to handle. But Mimic gets up and probably, walks away, apparently. I don't know. <laughs> I think they probably, like, at least called for somebody to pick it up. I don't think they left it in the cabin. <laughs> I don't think Vera would. She was just in this codependent, crazy relationship, right? Or Mimic, like, used his telepathy, like, get away. No, his powers are gone. Never mind. The funny thing is that 17 years later, it'll be established that, like, a couple hours after they left, he woke up. So they didn't check very hard. 
But that's 17 years in the future. And first, I think now is a good time to pause for the Cerebro character file on Calvin Montgomery Rankin. I will take you through his complete publication history from this Silver Age stuff and Bronze Age stuff now in 73, up through the Exiles material and then back into the return of 616 Mimic and the very small role he's had to play in mutant affairs in the time since. For now, stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Hey everybody, we're doing things a little differently today because I'm excited as Connor Goldsmith, your host, to tell you about the podcast's extraordinary new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game, every comic fan's dream. In this mobile squad RPG, you can assemble a team of your favorite superheroes and supervillains, like Dr. Lorna Dane and the iconic Madeline Jennifer Pryor, to save the universe from cosmic threats like Apocalypse and Doctor Doom. Power up your favorite Marvel characters to complete missions, unlock special gear and other resources, and battle other Marvel fans in PvP modes like Alliance War in the real-time arena. Right now, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating their six-year anniversary with a special Deadpool event, and you can sign up using my unique link available right now in the description of every episode. You'll get free stuff in the game just for signing up through this promotion, with weekly bonuses and events all through this anniversary storyline. Log in every day to get special skins, rewards, and the brand new characters being released to celebrate six years of Marvel Strike Force. This is the game's most generous event to date, and I for one can't wait to see all the goodies I can unlock. This promo code works for every new user. Please follow the unique link in this episode description to download Marvel Strike Force so they'll know I sent you. Use the promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Have a blast with this immersive Marvel experience. Thanks to Marvel Entertainment and the team at Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. We now return you to the show. X-Men, X-Men. Calvin Montgomery Rankin, a.k.a. The Mimic, is one of the earliest members of the X-Men, but his tenure was short-lived. Created by Stanley and Jack Kirby as an antagonist, arrogant power copier Cal briefly joined the team under writer Roy Thomas, but ultimately couldn't mesh with his classmates. Over the decades, he struggled to find a consistent role in the franchise, but his popularity was boosted a great deal by writer Judd Winnick when the alternate Mimic of Earth-12 starred in the popular 2001 ongoing Exiles. In the years since, a few attempts have been made to bring Earth-616's Mimic to similar prominence, but none of them have really stuck. Cal makes his debut in 1966's X-Men 19. A hot-headed young man about the same age as the X-Men, he begins harassing Hank McCoy when he's on a date with his girlfriend Vera. Vera, later given the full name Vera Cantor by Marvel Handbooks, is a librarian, and Cal has been obsessed with her since he visited the library to take out a book on mining. The confrontation between Hank and Cal becomes heated, and Cal suddenly discovers himself mimicking Hank and Bobby Drake's powers, becoming super strong and agile and creating ice and snow. The locals, assuming he's the mutant, chase him off. Once he's alone, Cal notices these new powers disappearing, and we learn his origin story. Born to scientist Ronald Rankin, Cal felt neglected by his father and wound up getting into an accident in the lab. This chemical spill left him with the strange new power to absorb positive traits, physical and mental, from the people around him, provided he stays in proximity. Once Dr. Rankin figured out what was going on, he took Cal into seclusion with him in a cave, building a laboratory there and hoping to find a way to remove this ability. To assuage Cal, who had grown arrogant, reveling in his power, Dr. Rankin lied and said he was building a machine that would make Cal's mimicry permanent. Unfortunately, Cal's father was killed in an explosion after local townsfolk noticed electricity being diverted to the doctor's secret lab. The blast sealed the cave shut, with Cal stuck outside it and denied access to the finally completed machine. 
Now, realizing that the boys he's fought with must be two of the X-Men, Cal follows them to Xavier's school and, despite apparently not being a mutant himself, demands to join the team. He still believes his father's machine will make his powers permanent, and he intends to convince the X-Men to use their powers to access the laboratory. Battling the X-Men with their own powers, Cal kidnaps Jean Grey and lures the team to the collapsed cave, using their mutant powers to tunnel his way in. When he accesses the device, however, his powers are erased, as his father intended. Professor Xavier then wipes his memories to protect the X-Men. This is the final issue of the Lee and Kirby run on X-Men, with Roy Thomas assuming writing duties the following month. Cal returns later that year in X-Men 26, where he meets Jean as a fellow student at Metro College. It turns out another chemlab accident has somehow restored his mimicry power and his memories, but this time he hopes to join the X-Men for real. In the following issue, after a friendly fire accident, Cyclops resigns as field leader of the team, and Xavier appoints Mimic to take his place. He serves in this capacity for a few adventures over the next couple months, as the X-Men battle the Puppet Master and the forces of Factor 3, including Sean Cassidy, the Banshee. In issue 29, after another dust-up with his teammates, Xavier attempts to expel Cal, but Cal decides to quit. He's interrupted amid his departure by the arrival of the Super Adaptoid, who you don't need to worry about. He's a big robot who also copies powers like Mimic. Anyway, he wants to turn the X-Men into robots, and initially Cal is kinda into it because it might give him some powers of his own. When he realizes the Super Adaptoid intends to make them slaves, he rebels and tricks the android into using his mimicry powers to mimic Cal's mimicry powers, which causes a feedback loop that ends the threat of the Super Adaptoid but also apparently takes Cal's powers away for good. Or not. Six years later, in the pages of The Incredible Hulk 161, Hank McCoy is summoned by his old flame Vera, who asks him to help her. And her boyfriend, Cal. In this story, written by Steve Englehart, Cal's powers have returned and have only grown more potent. He now drains energy from people around him, and this has led to accidental deaths. Guilt-ridden and afraid, he and Vera have isolated themselves in the Canadian wilderness. Hank tries to invent a solution, but the group is attacked by the Hulk, who senses his own gamma power is being drained by something in the cabin. Cal decides to make another heroic sacrifice, throwing himself onto the Hulk to protect Vera and Hank, and absorbing a fatal level of gamma radiation to defuse the threat. In 1990, 17 years later, writer Michael Higgins revisits Mimic for a Marvel Comics Presents story. It turns out Cal wasn't dead after all, and eventually his mimicry power reached out to Wolverine, who was at the time a Canadian government operative. Mimicking Logan's healing factor, Cal's body restored itself and purged the radiation poisoning. But as his power continued to evolve, he found himself physically transforming into a duplicate of Logan, even mimicking his adamantium claws and, unfortunately, his murderous berserker rage. Cal spends years in the woods in this state, somehow managing to control himself, but one day he travels farther from the cabin than he has before, and he's abruptly driven to bloodthirsty madness. His killings are blamed on Wolverine, but the real Wolverine teams up with the Hulk to defeat him. In a retcon, it's established that the cave laboratory where Cal and his father had lived back in the 60s is actually in this region of Canada, where Dr. Rankin worked for the government on the projects that would create Weapon X. The heroes eventually realize Dr. Rankin invented another special machine, and that this one emits a calming frequency. Cal had lost control of himself once he'd left the device's active radius. Cal is left despondent at his inability to control his own life but finds his true form restored after Logan suggests he learn Japanese meditation practices. This story is pretty crazy. Five years later, Mimic returns in the Jeff Loeb run on X-Force. 
Cal's powers are out of control again, and somehow he now permanently possesses the powers of the 60s X-Men, which will persist from now on. The mutant underground organization Xavier coordinates has found Cal a safe, isolated location in Siberia to hide away from other mutants, but the facility is abruptly destroyed. X-Force investigates, and Cal assumes they were the attackers. After an attempt at mimicking Sunspot knocks out everybody in an explosion, Cal is carried off by someone. This was maybe Onslaught? Onslaught destroyed the Siberia base. Truly, don't worry about it. When we see Cal again a year later, he's working for a deviant called Sledge who has helped stabilize his powers in exchange for his service. Cal's pitted against Xverse a few times over the next two years or so while indentured to Sledge. Eventually, he's apprehended when his ally Risque betrays her comrades, and he's taken into custody by the government's new anti-mutant project, Operation Zero Tolerance. Cal returns the following year in the final four issues of Excalibur Volume 1, written by Ben Robb. He's rescued by the titular team from a prime sentinel black site in Peru, where he's been subjected to months of torture. They bring him back to Muir Island, where they help him recover psychologically. Rob intended for Mimic to join the team, but the book was cancelled with issue 125, in which Cal's in attendance at Captain Britain and Megan's wedding. Cal returns the following year in the X-Men and Uncanny X-Men titles as a member of Mystique's newest iteration of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and makes a few cameo appearances in stories you don't especially need to worry about. Then, in 2001, comes Exiles by Judd Winnick and Mike McCone. This book, sort of an X-Men riff on Quantum Leap and Sliders, stars a cast of characters from alternate Marvel Earths who've supposedly become unstuck in time due to a disruption in the multiverse. They're tasked by an entity called the Time Broker with repairing what has gone wrong on various Earths, in the hopes that the butterfly effect will repair each of their own individual broken timelines. This book was primarily a vehicle for the Age of Apocalypse version of Clarice Ferguson, aka Blink, who is the team leader. The second lead of the book is the Calvin Rankin of Earth-12, a new character who serves as Blink's love interest. Earth-12 Mimic is explicitly described as a mutant, unlike the inconsistent depictions of Cal on 616 as either a science experiment gone wrong or a chemical accident awakening a latent mutant power. It's never super clear. Here, he's just a mutant. This version of the character has the ability to store five mutant power templates at a time, but possesses only 50% of the power of each mutant he copies. On his Earth, he's the leader of the X-Men, having once been a member of the Brotherhood before being redeemed by Charles Xavier and becoming the world's most popular super superhero. We'll relate the important Exiles adventures in the main conversation, so I don't feel the need to go over them in too much detail here, but suffice it to say that this version of Mimic, like Exiles itself, was extremely popular with readers. Blink and Mimic quickly become sexual partners, but struggle to admit any deeper emotional involvement. Blink is from a brutal world that has made her emotionally closed off, and Mimic is from a gentle world that has left him ill-prepared for the grim Earths the Exiles visit. He's especially traumatized by missions requiring him to kill evil versions of Jean Grey, the woman he loved, and Namor the Submariner, his best friend. When the Exiles visit a world where the Transmode virus and Legacy virus merge into one super virus, Blink winds up infected, and Mimic apologetically confesses his deeper feelings at her bedside. The team manages to cure her at the last moment, but the lovers are separated, apparently forever, when the Time Broker announces Blink has repaired her own personal time stream and teleports her away. Mimic is made leader of the Exiles in her place. After about 10 issues, the team winds up scattered across dimensions by an enemy's spell, and while most of them are found quickly, Mimic spends years on a grim earth that had been conquered by the Brood. He's repeatedly parasitized by the aliens, but his mimicked healing factor burns out the embryos, as it would for Wolverine. Eventually he's found and returns to the Exiles, but on their next mission they learn he's still suffering from one last Brood infestation. 
When his healing factor is compromised in battle, Mimic's overtaken by the brood embryo within him and battles his friends. Though they manage to restore him and kill the parasite, they're aghast to discover their teammate Mariko Yoshida, aka Sunfire, has been killed in the crossfire. Sunfire is replaced on the team by the return of Blink and Mimic is more than happy to let her be team leader again. In honor of Mariko, Cal vows never to take another human life. Unfortunately, under new writer Chuck Austin, they immediately end up in a battle royale to the death with a rival team of exiles, which tests his commitment to this new ethos. This strange event, along with other odd anomalies, leads the team to begin suspecting the time broker is more than he seems. Under new new writer Tony Bedard, they eventually discover he's an illusion, the face of the alien race that actually damaged the time stream. Everything the exiles had been told about their own circumstances was a lie, and they'd merely been drafted by these aliens to clean up their own mistake. These revelations lead to another confrontation between Mimic and Hyperion, the leader of the rival team of exiles, in which Mimic is grievously injured. To save himself, he mimics Deadpool's healing power, but also begins developing cancerous growths all over his body, just like Deadpool's. He finds he cannot release Deadpool's power template, and Blink is disturbed by the change in his appearance. Soon afterward, the team ends up on a mission battling a version of Proteus, the Omega-level reality warper who exists as energy and must continually possess and burn out new living hosts. At a critical moment, Mimic hesitates to kill Proteus because of his vow to Sunfire, and, as a result, he becomes the villain's new host. The Exiles chase Proteus across realities in an effort to save Mimic, but two issues later, in 2005's Exiles 73, they find his abandoned, used-up corpse. Blink weeps over his gnarled and twisted frame. The End Back on Earth-616, Cal Rankin makes a brief cameo appearance as a prisoner of the Thunderbolts during the company-wide event Civil War. A few years later, during the Utopia and Dark Reign events, he becomes a regular cast member in Dark X-Men by Paul Cornell and Leonard Kirk. This book makes a concerted effort to develop Cal as a character. It's retroactively established that back during Excalibur, Moira McTaggart had diagnosed Cal with bipolar disorder and gotten him onto mood-stabilizing medication. Cal retained his powers after the decimation, maybe because he's not a mutant, or maybe he is one, TBD, but he ends up losing control and accidentally killing a passerby with an optic blast. He's rescued from prosecution by Norman Osborn, who's risen to power in the U.S. government and replaced the X-Men and the Avengers with teams of his own. Cal is overjoyed to finally be a structurally supported superhero, and naive enough not to quite understand what's going on around him. Cal's comrades among the Dark X-Men and Dark Avengers include teammate Michael Pointer, aka Weapon Omega, who becomes his best friend and shares a similar power to drain and copy mutant energies, and Dr. Carlos Sofen, aka Moonstone who becomes Cal's psychiatrist and manipulates him on Osborne's behalf. Cal's with Michael when he accidentally mimics the ambient energies of Nate Gray, triggering a precognitive vision. Cal witnesses his own future, in which he's married to Vera Cantor and they have a child. Then his optic blasts go out of control once more, and he kills them both. When the vision ends, Cal understandably becomes desperate to avert this possible timeline. When Nate Gray attacks Osborne, Cal's torn between helping his boss and getting more information on the potential future. Osborne ends up convincing Cal to combine his power with Michael's, and they negate Nate's powers. Nate is then imprisoned and tortured by Osborne's forces. The end. They did call it Dark Rain. It's pretty grim. It's good, though. Anyway, two years later, in 2012, Cal and Michael return in Christos Gage's run on X-Men Legacy. Michael's become addicted to absorbing mutant energy after experiments conducted on him by Osborne, and Cal's been trying to use his own power to help his friend. Unfortunately, it isn't working, and soon Michael's so full of mutant juice that he's going to explode. 
literally. With no other choice, Cal approaches the X-Men, and he and Rogue join forces in an effort to absorb the energy harmlessly. It doesn't work, and soon it seems all three of them will explode, until Cal remembers how he defeated the Super Adaptoid so long ago, and the three power mimics begin using their powers on one another. This creates a feedback loop that successfully drains the energy away from Cal and Rogue, but Michael is still volatile. The only way to save Michael and the innocents around them for miles is to put him in a telepathic coma while the X-Men work to solve the problem. Refusing to leave Michael's side, Cal joins the Jean Grey School as a teacher and legitimately becomes a member of the X-Men for the first time since the 1960s. Cal stays with the school through the Avengers vs. X-Men company-wide event, but departs a few months later in issue 275. Michael's been cured, and Cal doesn't know what to do with his life now. He and Rogue go on a mission together and talk it out, and ultimately Cal decides he's still figuring out who he really is. He decides to leave the school with Michael, his best friend, and go on a journey of self-discovery. Anyway, they come back about a year and a half later in issue 300 with the book now written by Cy Spurrier. They've been acting as superheroes independent of the X-Men and are approached by the mutant Forget-Me-Not, whose power makes everyone forget his existence. He wants them to take his powers away, and they're tempted because it would enable them to pursue their heroics undercover. Unfortunately, after a series of confrontations, they end up forgetting him while discussing the matter. Four years later, in 2018, Cal plays an important role in the franchise-wide event Extermination by Ed Brisson and Pepe Larath. In this story, the time-traveling teenage versions of the 60s X-Men, introduced years earlier by Brian Michael Bendis, are pursued by a younger version of Cable. This teen Cable executes the version of Cable we're familiar with, and is determined to resolve the time paradox created by the time-traveling 05. Teen Cable knows he has to send them back, but in order to preserve the timeline, he must ensure they are mind-wiped and also that they are exactly as they were when they left. Unfortunately, Teen Warren's wings have been transformed into cosmic fire by the Black Vortex. Do not worry about it, which is pretty different from how they were in the 60s. To resolve this problem, Teen Cable attacks Cal at a grocery store with tranquilizer darts, surgically removes his wings, and surgically grafts them onto Teen Warren. Because Cal copied his wings from Warren in the first place, this serves to restore Warren's wings from the perspective of the time stream. Cal is remarkably mature about all this once it's explained to him afterward and actually wants to help with the whole situation. He teams up with the group to fight Ahab the Houndmaster, who's traveled back in time in an effort to kill one of the time travel teen 05 and disrupt the timeline forever. Cal, now without his wings to distinguish him, ends up wearing Scott's visor after Scott is injured and is slain by Ahab in Cyclops' place. He dies in Iceman's arms, affirming that all he wanted was to help. In the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Mimic is mentioned as one of countless mutants resurrected in a new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa by the mutant circuit called the Five. We're told Cal's resurrection was prioritized, like Sinks, because he could theoretically serve as a substitute for Hope Summers in that circuit. He doesn't appear on panel until 2023's Immortal X-Men 10 by Kieran Gillen and Lucas Vernack, in which Hope has been assassinated and the responsibility of resurrecting her falls on him. When Cal's unable to bring himself to do it, Sink steps in. And that's it. Rogue steps in, Sink steps in, Hope steps in. That's kind of, that's kind of his whole deal. Every time. Anyway. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed that. Probably wasn't super long uh, because <laughs> this character has, that's the best thing about season four, I have to say, is the character files are just going to get short. There are a couple, there are a couple characters like Bishop who I haven't covered yet where that one's going to suck. But Necra, Mimic, I haven't written it yet, but I can only imagine, like, because it's like 60s, 90s, Exiles, Dark X-Men Legacy, that's it. Are you ever going to do the Scarlet Witch? Because that's the big one you have left. People ask that all the time. I would say my current answer is no. 
I'm flexible on this. I did Pietro, obviously, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but that made more sense to me because in the 90s, which was the X-Men's biggest moment, Pietro was an X-Men character. He was an X-Factor. Uh, Wanda's just never, like once she left, she never came back. The only X-Men stories that Wanda plays a significant role in are House of M, which I don't think any Wanda fan wants to hear X-Men fans talk about, and Trial of Magneto which was fixing House of M almost 20 years later, right? 15 years later, whatever it was. And it's very recent and my friend wrote it. So I'm kind of like, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, I'm just kind of like, I don't know how fruitful or fun that would be because really she's only ever been presented until Trial of Magneto in X-Men series as an antagonist. Like even in Uncanny Avengers by Remender, she's the one who's talking shit about mutants and their culture, which is Insane for so many reasons, but not least of which because when she's like, well, mutants don't have a culture. It's like, yeah, because you decimated them. <laughs> like, it's just a crazy thing to have come out of that character's mouth. She's so arrogant in that series, yeah. And listen, I'm a Havoc fan. That series is not great for many of the characters who were in it. But, you know, basically my thought process is... With Quicksilver, there is enough X-Men material to talk about that it felt germane. I would do a Carol Danvers episode before I would do a Wanda episode. That you makes know sense. what I mean? So it's a combination of things. One is that like the Warbs, I, you know, I make jokes about the jobs. The Warbs make the jobs look like the poor Claire's in terms of, <laughs> you know. Like, the poor Claire's, people who are not familiar, are like an ascetic sect of Catholic nuns. Those fans are a lot. Uh, and I just don't know that I want, like, to what end, to what end is kind of how I feel about doing, like, a Wanda episode. <laughs> I'm very Maya Rudolph's Dion Warwick impression because, like, what? why invite that into my home to not talk about X-Men comics on my X-Men podcast? Just feels like a weird, bad choice. I guess I might someday do, like, an appendix episode for the Patreon. <laughs> Make them pay for it. No. <laughs> Put it behind the paywall. No, but I'm thinking, like, of just her roles in X-Men stories. Because they would be very minimal. It would be, like, the 60s, Onslaught, House of M, Uncanny Avengers, Trial of Magneto, I guess. And I don't even count sure. Uncanny Avengers as an X-Men book, but there's, like, X-Men characters in it. I mean, I guess I could do that. I just, I, it, it just doesn't seem like it would be super interesting to X-Men fans. Yeah, she's very much an Avengers character. I or get enjoyable to Wanda fans because, again, the X-Men stories that she's appeared in are not super flattering to her. Yeah, I think that's a fair answer. Necro was definitely pushing it. Like, that chick has not been an X-Men character historically. However... I think she will be forever going. That's the other thing is I don't think Wanda is ever going to be an X-Men character because she's a hero's office character. Very emphatically, I don't see that in the cards. And so I just don't see the need. Anyway, when last we left Mimic, who is definitely an X-Men character, well, he was dead. So uh, (laughs) it was not, he wasn't having the best time because he was deceased. (laughs) As I mentioned before the break, in 1990, in Marvel Comics Presents, there is a story written by Michael Higgins in which it is revealed that not too long after Hank and Vera left, the way he was draining in a field around him started to diminish or whatever. Like, he he recovered from whatever illness it was and woke up. Maybe it was the gamma radiation. Well, and it's key to note that he does not have the powers of the original X-Men here. No. Those return later, but he's just a dude here who's also a drug addict. 
Well, <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah. So <laughs> basically, he's recovered from like the worst of it, but he's still absorbing from the air around him. And they're in the woods in Canada, as it happens. Like that's part of the original story. So it's very easy to retcon in Wolverines in the area. <laughs> so it's almost like this story was being sold as a Wolverine meets Hulk story. Because uh, Marvel Comics presents, for those that aren't familiar, it's four eight-page stories collected. It's an anthology of short serials, yeah. It's weekly re weekly releases. Uh, I think it ran for 152 issues. But I think this was being sold as an eight-part Wolverine Hulk story that mimics the foil that's the surprise reveal in it. Because you're, you're led to believe at the beginning that Wolverine's killing people, but it's mimic. Yeah, actually, why don't we... I'm explaining what actually happened to yeah, yeah. Cal. Why don't we... Why don't you take us away? Because you've been posting <laughs> pictures from this story. And this story is a crazy time. So... Why don't you set the scene? Yeah, so Wolverine's off in the woods. He fights a bear. But then another guy who looks like Wolverine kills a guy. And we learn that Mimic is going mad. He's fighting his own memories. He's been breaking into pharmacies and, like, swallowing handfuls of drugs. But he looks like Wolverine. Like, he has changed his shape to Mimic Logan. As far as we know, it's just, like, a clone of Wolverine running around. Like, mm -hmm. it being Mimic is a reveal. But he ends up taking hostages in a situation that gets out of his control. The Hulk shows up. Up and Hulk recognizes Mimic. Mimic has like a full-on mental breakdown in the middle of the fight. He like references his early history. And there's a key moment where he talks about when his pan his powers canceled out with the super adaptoid. He says, that's when I began to realize my powers must be somewhat inherent. You see, before I was born, my father had been working for the Canadian government on the early stages of something that was then called the Project Alpha, Project Omega. He had involved himself in some of the tests, some of the experiments. That's why he always blamed himself for what was happening to me. And when things started to get out of control, he goes on and on. I almost wonder if this is like forced in because the writer had put Mimic in Wolverine's form. And I almost wonder if he thought Mimic had Wolverine's adamantium. And it almost seemed like they were trying to give re like Mimic a reason to have the adamantium because it talks about his dad experimenting with adamantium and being connected. It's a weird story. I It's odd. I think it's complicated because at this stage, we still haven't revealed that Wolverine's claws are natural. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That doesn't happen until after Fatal Attractions. Oh, that's true. Since he mimics the claws... The way we understood it at the time, or I say we, I was two years old, but you get what I mean. <laughs> Until Fatal Attractions revealed there were bone claws under the adamantium claws, the belief was that Wolverine's power was his healing factor and that Weapon X had implanted the claws in him. This is actually like the retcon or the reveal, because it was, doesn't contradict anything prior, but the reveal that the claws are innate to Wolverine actually dovetails nicely with this story but it's possible as you're saying that they tied dr rankin to weapon x to explain that it's also hinted here it reflects back on that incredible hulk story we talked about mimic says his powers got altered in an experiment he also says at the end of the story that he tried to kill himself and he says and it nearly worked you all left me for dead but he also began to heal himself at that time. So he has attached somehow to Wolverine and now has a healing factor. That's when he pinged onto Wolverine, which is what gave him the healing factor and purged the radiation poisoning and woke him up. But the exposure 
to Wolverine and mimicking Wolverine from afar all this time has slowly transformed him physically into Wolverine for some reason and also, most importantly, has caused him to absorb Wolverine's berserker rage. Right. Which is why he's killing people. Which is a big plot point around this time. The idea that Weapon X programmed some kind of sleeper agent kill mode into Wolverine. It is what makes Wolverine so bloodthirsty and like he wants to kill all the time. And so Mimic, who has absorbed that now, doesn't have the wherewithal to deny himself killing people. And so he's been killing people and he's freaking him out. It's also said a few different times that Mimic's powers are being altered. They're changing. The, my father's machine has altered me, and now it's changed me again. What's well, trying to retcon together why all these stories have his powers doing wildly different things, right? Right, and there's a lot of dialogue explaining it. I had to read the story like five times. But he ends up working with Wolverine and the Hulk. There's a funny image where they're like, all hanging out in their underwear and some like girls pick him up like as hitchhikers. And one of the girls is like, Ooh, look at this. There's some shirtless men in my truck. Like it's, <laughs> it's funny. Cause two of them are Wolverine, right? <laughs> right. Right. Cause Mimic <laughs> looks exactly like Wolverine yeah. except in his briefs. <laughs> They end up taking him back to a cave. It's You're meant to believe it was the original cave that blew up with the machine, but also it's in but Canada now. It's in Canada. Well, but okay, but actually, now that I think about it, there's no reason why Calvin and his father needed to have been in Westchester if you just assume that Calvin wandered down from Canada into oh, New that's York true. Yeah, yeah. after his father died. Basically, it just moves the location of the cave to Canada retroactively. They get there and there's a machine and there's a computerized like digital consciousness of Ronald Rankin, his father, that comes to life like a little data thing. And uh, he's like, father, you're dead. And uh, the the he says, you know, what, what this is, is a holographic image. But he's having like a full conversation with his son. Like, did this guy like machine smith himself where he's uploaded himself into like his brain is now a computer? I don't know what's exactly happening here. It's very that one Pokemon game. And I'm not going to say which one because it's a spoiler <laughs> for that Pokemon game. But those who know, no. <laughs> or like, I mean, it's just it's a tropey thing. It's like, don't worry, I uploaded my consciousness into this computer and it can speak to you. Or it's like, you know an imprint or whatever. And he basically says, the dad says, I've been using this machine to send out like a pulse or a beacon that will help you control your powers or take them away as long as you're in range. But then you left the range. And so that's why things are screwing up. There's a lot of explanation given to this power set, like to the point that I'm annoyed. <laughs> and then the resolution is one of the craziest things I've ever read. I had never read this story before preparing for this episode. The way it ends is Wolverine encourages Calvin to learn to control himself by adopting Japanese Zen practices. Mm -hmm. And Calvin constructs a pagoda in the woods near his father's pulses. And we close on him meditating in a robe in the temple he has built. Calvin has a weird, like, he blames Wolverine because of the Berserker stuff for why he's been killing people. And then he has this, like, weird fall to the ground. Like, I don't want to be dependent on my dad's machine to control my abilities. So, yeah, Wolverine's like, just meditate. You'll be fine, buddy. And then they leave him in the fucking woods again. <laughs> but I can't stress enough. It's a full, like, six-story temple that they build. Like, looking at his battle, I'm just like, uh-huh, okay, why not? <laughs> The answer, my man, is to become a Buddhist is like very crazy. 
it's extremely 1990 core. I'll tell you that. For this white guy to be like, I know what'll fix you. Transcendental meditation. I practice it every day. If the Transcendental Meditation people want to sponsor the pod, I will do an ad in Wolverine voice. <laughs> Just saying. TM, if you're listening. Mimic's running theme is he was in the cave alone. He gets left alone. He moves into the wilderness alone. I mean, Vera's there. Now he's off on his own. They just leave him again. Like, he's always by himself, and he longs for somebody. There's there's a heart to that for this. But then we get to X-Force. It's Onslaught. Oh, also, the reason, the drug addict <laughs> thing, we should explain that. Oh, he sure. was stealing painkillers and taking them in massive amounts because the way his power was mutating was incredibly painful. So that was why. Or at least that's the, re that's the reason he gave. That's what he said. I don't says. know how much I believe this guy. <laughs> well, it's also like, were you killing people? because you absorb the berserker rage or are you just having a psychotic break is like also <laughs> a question in this story so i murdered people please feel sorry for me yeah he's right ugh, ugh. i i really dislike this story i'm glad they brought him back it's fun in its way but it is not my favorite so we leave him learning the ways of the buddha or maybe it's shintoism i actually don't know what kind of temple this is but moving on because we're never going to see it again he absorbed Wolverine's meditation practices. <laughs> <laughs> Five years later, in 1995, we get a Jeff Loeb story. Adam Polina. I love this art. Yeah. Adam Polina draws the hell out of it. The Jeff Loeb run on X-Force is not my favorite. It builds out the Richter and Shatterstar gay stuff that Nicieza had planted a seed for. So that's fun. Otherwise... It's just kind of a slog. The Benjamin Russell plot is really dire. Risqué, though, is fun. All the risqué stuff is fun. Mimic ties into that arc. So I was pleased to reread some of those issues because it had been a minute. Yeah. Xavier has set Mimic up in Siberia at a base to live by himself. He now has the original expense powers back. And now he just has those forever. Like, they're just permanent for some reason. He's drawn so buff with, like, long hair and a beard here. He's so hot. <laughs> He's being tended to by uh, Xavier's Underground, which I hate this name, but it's, like, the human allies that support the mutant cause. The mutant underground, but they're humans who support the mutant cause. Yeah. yeah. They're a big thing from the 90s. Monet's father and grandfather were a big part of it. That's how Monet factors in in Gen X. But it's not really something that's ever... It kind of gets folded into X-Corporation in the aughts, which I think works better. Mimic fights X-Force, Caliban notably says, and I love Caliban. Caliban's a character that I adore. Caliban notably says, I smell something like a mutant, but not. Like a mutant, but not. Uh-huh. So again, we don't know what's happening. For people listening, if you're not familiar, Caliban is the Morlock whose power is to sense other mutants. Yes. And he's like, something odd about that one. So... Mimic tries to adapt Sunspot's powers, he explodes, he disappears, but it turns out he's been recruited by Sledge. I'll let you explain Sledge. <laughs> no, you won't. Sledge, <laughs> uh, Sledge is a deviant, uh, like the Eternals, and this is not an Eternals podcast, so guess what? I always got the vibe they were trying to make the 616 version of Sugar Man. You with think? Sledge? That's what I always Because this is right after AOA. Because there's no 616 version of Sugar Man. And this guy, look, this guy looks like Sugar Man. Listeners of the pod will know that after listener Kay Hurst suggested that Jumbo Carnation is the 616 Sugar Man, I've been obsessed Ooh, with that read. Yes. But that's not canon, to be clear. I guess, like, I'm, I just flip back. He looks like Sugar Man. Mm -hmm. I just don't... 
I don't know. He may not be. That, that may have been the intention. I, tr- I truly don't yeah, know. Yeah, I just don't know. But he is a deviant. The offshoot of the Eternals, as seen in AXE Judgment Day that X-Men fans read, but otherwise not seen in very many Marvel comics because the Eternals have always just been kind of confusing and never really worked that well. I mean, they I, I liked what Kieran did with them, but they're tough. They're a tough one. He's tied really in depth into Risqué's backstory. So someday when I do a Risqué episode, I will explain who Sledge is in more detail. But I assure you, it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah, you got the gist. He sends mutants out on missions a few times and then he's done. So that's all you need. Then you never have to worry about him again. He's hired a couple of these people, villains who need work. And it includes Mimic and Blob. And Post. Post is there. Who he sure is. Uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> this is a weird Blob era too. This is when Blob is drawn like this giant amorphous, like the Blob that eats Manhattan kind of monster. And it turns out that Sledge is the one who like blew up Mimic's little hidey hole home in Siberia that he thought X-Force had destroyed. And it's all been like, none of none of this fucking matters. But he's now in circulation again, is the point. Risqué, who is also working for Sledge as a spy and trying to seduce Warpath, but then they've actually fallen in love. She's sort of Warpath's Catwoman because Warpath is kind of the lead in X-Force at this moment, In uh, which is kind of crazy. He just sort of transitions over time from like, remember this character who was a recurring character in New Mutants to now he is the lead of the book, which yeah, is kind of yeah. an impressive trajectory. He's another one, actually, a pretty big one that I haven't covered yet. Fair. In X-Force 60, it does note in a caption box that Mimic can mimic other mutants' powers. This is the stuff the handbooks guys would seize on, because it says other mutants. Because it says other mutants, Mm -hmm. right. You get the vibe that he and Risqué are close, that they're friends. Uh, We also get a line where where Warpath challenges him and says, aren't you one of the good guys? And Mimic says, sometimes we cannot choose the roles we play. So he goes on missions. He fights X-Force a couple times. Risqué runs away. He has to go get her back. Risqué runs away and he's sent after her. And then Warpath basically just beats the shit out of him. Risqué turns on them and teams up with Warpath because she's fallen in love with him, etc., this character getting dropped was a shame. She's really like the one thing about the Lobrun I really do like is that yeah, character. Yeah, I like her too. And I'm glad she's back. That was one of the Krokoan resurrections where I was like, yeah, cool. Thumbs up. That was good. Because she was the one who like when Grant Morrison just threw a dart at like a list of 90s characters they'd never heard of for like who was going to be the ex-corp agent that died. It just came up <laughs> to stay <laughs> in that annual. After Warpath and Risqué beat them up, they are captured by Operation Zero Tolerance, which is spiraling out of the onslaught crisis. And this is where they're creating prime sentinels. They're turning, like, yes. putting tech into humans that will turn them into, like, sentinel agents. It's the project that will eventually lead to the Omega Sentinels, like Karima Shapant are. Yeah, yeah. And they were scary. I was reading the books at this time. This was a the scary The Prime Sentinels concept. are really scary. Yeah, yeah, this was very, very scary conceptually. And that's part of why Hickman's Karima was so compelling because the data pages explaining how it works in mm-hmm. your brain and stuff were mm-hmm. like, that was so scary. <laughs> where it's just like, soon you just are the Sentinel and you've never been anything different and you'll never understand that something is wrong. It's like, oh, I hate this. <laughs> 
But uh, they put Mimic in a base in Peru, and this is where Ben Rab's Excalibur picks him up. Yes. He like explodes and. Uh, his powers are too powerful, and Excalibur rescue him. This is very late stage Excalibur. So it's the Ben Rob run, as you said. It's Kitty and Douglock. It's Kitty in her like very bizarre darker ninja era that happens right at the end of Excalibur where like she starts wearing a black full body cat suit and like a black domino mask and is like I'm Shadow Cat like you know and you're like what's going on with you <laughs> it just doesn't really get properly picked up I mean I guess Claremont kind of plays with it in Revolution era when she's using the Wolverine claw and stuff but and when we say late stage Excalibur we're talking like the last four like, issues this is the last three issues of before the he's canceled yeah. yeah it's 122 to 125 so yeah four issues and Mimic has been tortured by the uh, by the Prime Sentinels or whatever whatever they're yes. called. Uh, he's been there for months, and then we also see him adopt Excalibur's powers. He gets Kitty's like phasing in martial arts. He gets Kitty's phasing, Nightcrawler's teleportation, Colossus's metal stuff. But then he's like, "What the fuck is Douglock?" And then he gets beat up. <laughs> yes, because Douglock is confusing to look at as a power mimic. You're like, "What the fuck is that?" I mean, frankly, we as readers were like, "What the fuck is that?" Still about Douglock. I'm still I'm still that way. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah it's uh, it's tough the warlock episode was tough that was a tough one the transmode virus is one of those I just have to go uh-huh okay <laughs> that's the worrying about it episode that I'm dreading is one day doing the transmode virus Ugh. like trying to untangle that because it doesn't make any sense it's it not weird sense. I just did the apocalypse episode and I wanted to die tracking the provenance of the transmode virus it was unbearable <laughs> again speaking as your fan i feel like the the character histories that i've heard in your voice like that stress you out the most were apocalypse and saber tooth i'm just like oh poor connor <laughs> monet and cable were also really bad but those were fun it was fun to try and like untangle the monet retcons and like tracking cable through time chronologically but also through time time travel wise was fun these were not fun they just they weren't <laughs> <laughs> Mimic hangs out with Excalibur for like an issue. And again, I've interviewed Ben Rav. He's a great guy. Uh, he did have plans for Mimic to like stay on the team, but it was canceled and he doesn't remember what, what the plans were. We kind of get a couple moments with him. He like very, he feels very alone and he wonders like if he'll ever matter. Uh, he's at like uh, the wedding of Captain Britain and Megan. And there's one scene where- Which is the final issue, yeah. Yeah, Captain UK, who is Linda McQuillan. Linda McQuillan, yeah. 238. 238. She aggressively- with him you fancy a guy with the full monty upstairs she says and he goes uh are you usually this forward <laughs> and she goes oh, only with the big ones <laughs> yeah no well she did she was married to miracle man jr on her <laughs> but he was like big by that point because it's like the future that is a blind spot for me this is linda mcquillan is not a character i know anything about oh well she i mean she's from the original the alan moore captain britain stuff I've read that, but it's been 30 years. I have to go yeah, back. Yeah, well, it's, it's so good, though. You should reread it. It's so good. Oh, so I've good. I've really enjoyed your, like, Jamie Braddock stuff. Like, the stuff that takes us back there is is wonderful. Linda would be a fun episode. I don't know if she has enough. I'd have to. Maybe Appendix episode? Anyway, yes. So he was supposed to be on the team, but they canceled the book because they were tightening up the X-Men line at that point. And they wanted to bring Colossus, Nightcrawler, and Shadowcat back to the X-Men which they had not been on for many years by that yeah, point. Yeah, and, and you can't have an Excalibur there then because if Wolvesbane is your biggest hitter at that point. Right, like it was exactly... <laughs> well, and they had brought Wolfsbane and Moira to Excalibur to try and make more people buy Excalibur. That is literally... Like, Wolfsbane was seen as a draw, but she's not 
it's not enough. It's simply not enough, especially not. Well, you know, it's really tragic because it would have been great for Mimic. And also, if Ben Robb had been able to continue writing Wolfsbane in Excalibur, she might not have wound up in New Mutants Academy X. Yeah, and he did some good stuff with her there. Ben Rabb, I mean. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was fine. I liked the her and Doug Locke stuff. Not Academy X. Yeah, no, I was like, oh, I don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, don't fuck your students. That's not a good idea. No, yeah, ever. don't do that. Anyway, that is uh, the end of Mimic for a sec. But the following year, they loop him in for the Hunt for Xavier storyline. <laughs> story stresses me out. I hate it. <laughs> this is the Steve Siegel run. It's the one where Cerebro... Stop me if you've heard this one before. A thing that Charles Xavier invented gains sentience and becomes a self-aware being and tries to kill all the X-Men. And creates a copy of himself, but also a team of not X-Men that have backstories. <laughs> what I'm saying is it's very akin to the Joss Whedon Danger storyline, but whereas Danger became a popular character, Cerebrite or whatever, like the Cerebro self-aware <laughs> version that happens in this comic, um, it's not a good comic. This is one of my least favorite, the art is pretty, but this is one of my <laughs> least favorite X-Men stories. I don't think, the, here's the thing, the fake X-Men that Cerebro creates, like all of them conceptually are cool, Amazing. the art is really cool. Hunt for Xavier, I just want to die the whole time. This whole period of X-Men, I just, it's rough for me. Late 90s. Xavier has become Onslaught and now he's missing and they're looking for him, but he has formed his own brotherhood. And on his brotherhood are Post and Toad in his worst era and Blob and Mimic. And if I'm telling you this is Toad's worst era, I'm saying worse than his janitor era. This is Toad hopping around and being like, hippity hop, stippity stop, I'm the Toad. Like, fuck, I hate it so much. <laughs> it's just really tough. But the new brotherhood has to team up with the X-Men to fight the Cerebro X-Men. I'm sure I explained this in the character file in a couple sentences, and that's frankly all you need to know. Mimic broke a leg, and he also uh, he also gets identified. Well, they well they follow up in X fifty one, which we don't have to cover either. But he does we're get, not. But he does get <laughs> called a mutant clearly in X fifty one. That's the only thing I'll note. Yeah, well, X fifty one. You know who wrote that? Mike Higgins and Carl Bowlers. Carl Bowlers, who wrote that fucking Emma Frost book. So I'm moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Carl Bowlers, if you're listening, sorry, but I fucking hate that I'm a frost. I just I'm having Carl Bowlers on my show soon. <laughs> Are you? Well, yeah. um, <laughs> don't. I would not recommend he listen to my conversations about. I will not bring that it up. <laughs> Please don't. But all love to him. Listen, he wrote Sonic the Hedgehog for like a bazillion years, so maybe he's got like a legion of fans. I don't know. I just know that my small forays into the Carl Bowler's Marvel of have not been my favorite. Uh, but two of them that are comics that exist are Emma Frost and X-51 Machine Man, which is the one you're talking about. This, I do like that Valerie Cooper, like this is actually kind of a fun Val Cooper scene. I had not read this one before. She lets him out of prison after he's been caught doing Brotherhood stuff. She's like, you're one of the good guys. You've just gotten caught up with a bad crowd and tries to hire him to be one of her people. And he's like, no, thank you. And goes to the Brotherhood, goes back to the Brotherhood. So I think that that is kind of characterizing in an interesting way. The only other like one notable thing about X-51 is Mystique has taken over this version of the Brotherhood and Mimic worked with Mystique. That's literally it. That's all you mm, need. Yeah. 
This is the iteration when they do successfully kill Senator Kelly in 2000, right? Right before. And they kill a guy, I think his name is Jack Kubrick. They kill like a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent in this issue. Yeah, but I'm thinking about like the the lineup that Mystique has when they assassinate Kelly in like right before. Yes, but Mimic's not there. It's uh, the lineup has changed. Lady Mastermind, one of them is there. So it's uh, it's uh, actually Martinique, so it's Mastermind 2. Mimic is in Uncanny X-Men 379, which is that issue where the high evolutionary like takes everyone's powers across the world. He's in like two panels, and then we don't see him again for 10 years. His wings fall off. Don't super worry about it at all. But the high evolutionary cancels mutant powers, and Mimic's powers are gone. Yep. So again, there's just another thing the handbook guy just would look well, for. Well, but what he says is... I can't retain any of the powers I copied as Mimic. <laughs> Meaning it's the mutant powers that are being erased. But that doesn't make sense if he's deactivated the X gene, right? So yep, it, it could be either way. That's the problem with Mimic is they just wouldn't, they wouldn't answer the question or they would answer it in different ways each time. So yeah, we don't see Mimic of 616 for six years i want to say i think it's 10 years not till 2009 so the, then we uh, have no exiles. no he has a he has a he has like a non-speaking cameo i think in thunderbolts oh sure those two. Oh no the the thunderbolts thunderbolts is uh it's thunderbolts 33 it's the flashback to the ogre with the human sapiens story so it just shows the early images of the x-men there i know i'm looking at the travis starnes reading order and i definitely checked this out. thunderbolts 103 during civil war oh okay i missed that one then iron man shows up this is during civil war iron man shows up and the thunderbolts he like accuses them of capturing villains to draft them into the thunderbolts and one of the villains they've captured is mimic okay it's one of those things where it's like dubiously canon because the character doesn't speak like who knows if the script said put some jobber supervillains in this panel you know this like, is nisi a... nisi is this thunderbolts army era but yeah we'll talk about that not a thunderbolts podcast <laughs> no but in the interim we get uh mimic in, in the exiles. interim though we get exiles mimic that's what i was about to say is like so right after the x51 story and then the high evolutionary story is when exiles debuts exiles as we alluded to earlier it's kind of crazy that I've never gotten like deep into the concept, but it's because it's an alternate universe. So I don't usually cover those. It's a lot of alternate universes actually. Yeah, yeah. Exiles is Judd Winnick. It's Judd Winnick getting a platform to write at Marvel. It's Judd Winnick being allowed to do whatever the fuck he wants with X-Men continuity. Um, Judd Winnick, formerly of MTV's The Real World with the Pedro Zamora stuff. So he's queer, famously, friendly. Famously, yes. Yeah. Queer friendly, yes. Not gay himself, but Correct. puts a lot of gay themes into his comics work. Which is cool. I appreciate that he did that. You know, sometimes I don't think it always lands quite right, but his heart's always in the right place, <laughs> especially this stuff. It was a long time ago. You know, it was early days and every little bit helped. So there's that. The premise of Exiles is a bunch of characters from alternate Earths are brought together by the Time Broker, a sort of mysterious entity who claims he was created from their subconscious by this cascade in time and space. Because something has come unstuck in the multiverse and all of their realities have been disrupted and their own personal history has now been broken in some way. So they don't have a world to go back to. And the only way that they will be able to reclaim their old lives is if they quantum leap into a new X-Men reality every couple issues and fix something that has gone wrong in that timeline. And eventually the idea is you'll get back to yours and you'll be able to fix that there or whatever. Or like 
fixing this timeline will change the current or the cascade. This all turns out to be bullshit, so it doesn't actually matter. I'm just explaining what the premise is that's provided to the characters. This book is created on some level as a showcase for two characters from AOA who were dead in the mainstream reality. Link, who had become the breakout star of AOA, and Morph, who was the other really popular hero character to come out of AOA. Well, and Hero Sabretooth, who is also part of Exiles because he leads an alternate team called Weapon X. But don't worry about that because it doesn't matter to this episode. It's literally the AOA blink. Basically, when the AOA reality collapsed, this is what happened to her. Later, they'll... Actually, over the course of Exiles is when I think they established that the Age of Apocalypse has persisted as its own timeline. But as the, the start of Exiles, I think that's what it is. The morph character here is not the morph from Age of Apocalypse, but has the exact same character design, which is what had become so popular. And that is like the morph you see in Marvel Snap. If you, if you think of the character morph and you're not thinking of the guy in the training uniform and the brown jacket from the animated series, you're thinking of this version of morph who is like a white silly putty guy. So those two characters were really popular. This is an alternate version, but he's similar to the one from AOA. And then the rest of the team is made up of Thunderbird, John Proudstar, the X-Man who died on his first real mission after Giant Size, but a version of him who was turned into a horseman of apocalypse the way that Warren was in our reality. Magnus, the son of Rogue and Magneto from his reality, which is another AOA throwback. Nocturne, who is the daughter of Nightcrawler and the Scarlet Witch in her reality, and Mimic. But this Mimic, who is blonde to distinguish him from 616 Mimic, is a version of the character who turned to a life of crime after discovering his powers, was redeemed by the X-Men. It's similar to the 60s story, but he joins the team, actually flourishes with the team, and eventually becomes the leader of the team. And it's said he is so popular on his Earth that human mutant tension is at an all-time low because he's like the Superman of his world, and so nobody has shit to say about mutants. He was, uh, when he first turned to crime, he joined his reality's original version of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, like with Toad, Scarlet Witch, with and Quicksilver. With Toad and Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, yeah. So you get the idea that the X-Men in this world gave him a chance. Mm -hmm. And he goes on to become fucking Captain America in his realm. Right. You know? And they say that, like, human-mutant relations have never been better. Unfortunately, he's told by the Time Broker that the Cascade has made it so he was never redeemed by the X-Men and is on death row in prison. So... He has a lot of incentive to help repair the damaged time stream. Pretty quickly on their first mission, Magnus is killed and we establish the other gimmick of Exiles, which is that characters die all the time and are replaced by new team members. In that way, it's similar to the Peter Milligan X-Force that later becomes Ecstatics, the idea that the characters are not bulletproof and in this book it's particularly dire because they are all except for AOA Blink completely disposable alternate universe versions of the IP like none of these characters actually matter so the writer can do whatever he wants Magnus is replaced by my favorite character from Exiles mm -hmm. lesbian Mariko Yoshida who is her world's version of Sunfire who is a great character, and I quit reading Exiles when they killed her off. I love her. 
Because she lasts for like 30 issues. But then when they took her out, I was like, I'm good on this book. And Winnick leaves not long after that. That might even be his last issue, actually. Uh, Mimic in this world has, he starts with the powers of Angel, Cyclops, Wolverine, Beast, and Colossus. And he has them all at like 50% strength. This is where they put in a specific limit on this version of Mimic. And they say he can copy five mutant templates at a time. And he has 50% of the power of the mutant he's copying in each case. So he's very strong. He's got the armor form. He's got the wings, the optic blasts, the healing factor, and the claws. Uh, you see him in out of metal form all the time. And then at a certain point, he sheds Angel's wings and instead takes on North Star's powers. Mm-hmm. So he then has that flight ability. And he sticks with those basically for the rest of his run. Yeah, he loses the wings because their second mission is a version of the Dark Phoenix saga. And he absorbs Jean's power so that he can fight Gene doesn't go well. Um, but to do that, he has to give up the wings. So then he hangs out with some Earth's version of North Star, and then he gets North Star powers. And yeah, that's sort of the power set he sticks with. But it's a good power set. I mean, it reminds me of like so many fans were like desperate for Rasputin 4 to become a real character. And I was just kind of like, but she's just like six other characters' powers in one character. And That doesn't appeal to me that much, but it's evidently a concept people find really cool. And (laughs) people found Exiles Mimic really cool. Uh Uh-huh. He's basically the male lead of the book. He is Blink's love interest. And pretty early in the run of the book, they get together. At the very least, like, they start sleeping together. It's sort of like, she's from a tough world. It's not clear that they have, like, a relationship, but they're definitely having sex. Oh, they're fucking all the time. And they're 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 fully They have feelings. I'm, I'm saying I don't know that they've like had the conversation. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? But they are absolutely fucking like bunnies. Until a traumatic moment where Mimic is forced to kill a version of Namor. And on his earth, Namor is one of his best friends. This is a beat that they keep repeating. It's actually kind of a repeat of the Dark Phoenix saga one is funny because you find out that on his earth. He was one of the, like, rivals for Jean's affections, right? In that Wolverine or Cyclops way, furthering the idea. It's actually not dissimilar to what happens in Mutant X, when it's, like, Havoc getting plugged into that role of, like, the important character. There's something appealing about that, conceptually. But anyway, he's really upset after he kills the evil Namor, and... He just won't let anyone in, including Blink, who tries to reach him. And they don't figure out their true feelings until in a cliche moment that he calls out as a cliche moment. And I'm like, Judd, you're still doing the moment. They go to an Earth where the transmode virus and the legacy virus have merged together into one super techno-organic legacy virus. And Blink gets infected and she's like dying And he confesses his feelings, but then they get fixed. They cure the disease, so it doesn't matter anymore. You mentioned the gimmick of uh, like members dying and new members coming in. Another trope of this book is it's what if. You never know what reality they're going to land in. Right. Every new reality is a new what if. I don't think there was a what if title publishing at this time. Exiles sort of took the place of that. And Mimic's kind of the character that you see dealing with this the most. He 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 gets haunted after a while. Like, I want to go home. He's from the reality that's most like our main one. Like, he's from a pretty close to 616 reality as opposed to blink who's from like age of apocalypse hell now i guess the others are probably also from earth similar to ours we just never hear that much about their worlds because they're the supporting cast 
But with him, it's very clear that, like, you just basically pull Cyclops out and plug him in for most big X-Men stories, and that's how it went. So he is the character who's usually reacting to how different from 616 the what-if story is that's happening around them. He's the like, hardened soldier I can't soldier believe out of Xavier's evil in this reality. Like, one of their—it's their very first mission. They assume—he assumes— that this actually is, is a fun bit. Yeah, yeah. He assumes that Xavier is the one who can help them, but it turns out that in the reality they're in, Charles Xavier is a psychopathic mass murderer, and he releases a telepathic EMP wave that kills 250,000 people the second that they release him from prison. And then he's like, ha, 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 and escapes into the night. They're like, what the fuck? It's like, okay, wait, 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 wait. So we can't, we just can't take anything for granted. Oops, sorry about this quarter million people who just died. Exiles also, because it's these alternate Earths, has a, not just the main cast, but just in general, huge body count. Like, they kill people, people die around them all the time. It's a pretty brutal book. I reread a bunch of it for this, and I liked it a lot more now than I did then, actually. I hadn't read it in years, and it, I really enjoyed it. It holds up. Much better than I thought it would. The only other real member that's of value is, uh, I think she comes around in um, number 10, is Sasquatch. Yeah, Heather Hudson, who is the best version of Heather Hudson and should replace <laughs> ours. And she's black and she is a phenomenal She's character. a black scientist who is also Sasquatch and turns into like a snowy white Sasquatch that looks kind of like the snowbird animals. So she's kind of all the best things about Alpha Flight combined into one character. And she's fucking awesome. And she is like... Until literally Sage joins the Exiles when Chris Claremont writes the Exiles, she's kind of the Sage of the group. She's or Oracle from Birds of Bird. Like she's the one who's in the Crystal Palace. Like here's the details, guys. A lot of the time, and she's really fun. I, you know, I love a woman in a monitor room. <laughs> uh, if you only read one issue of Exiles, and it goes on, I think, or a hundred issues. Read number eleven. Number eleven is their vacation issue. There's a great moment where they're on a nude beach, and Nocturne is looking at like mimics naked ass through a pair of binoculars and talking about how hot Blink's man is. This is also the issue where Sunfire comes out to morph. Uh, it's my favorite of the whole run. That's probably my favorite too. Yeah, it's a good one. So he's confessed his love to Blink, and then they fix the infection. This is back on Legacy Transmoder Earth. The creatures created by the virus are called the Vilocks, because they're viral warlocks, I guess. I don't fucking know. Before they can, like, actually reunite, the Time Broker appears, and it's like, hey, one of you has fixed enough of the butterfly effects that your reality is fixed now, so I'm sending you home. Bye! And Blink teleports away, like, to her home reality before she and Mimic can reconcile. And Mimic is devastated, but the Talus, which is, like, the... I mean, I don't think it sounding like <sighs> TARDIS is a coincidence. It's like, it's their thing that lets them travel in space and time, but it also tells them what, the, it's the MacGuffin that tells them what their mission is. <laughs> it's a very silly plot device thing. It's like when a character like Vicky Montesi or Cordelia Chase has like a psychic vision and this is what this episode is about now. It's a very convenient way to do that. But the talus literally is like a compass that points you to like, it like sits on your arm and it's like this way. Like that's where our mission is. So it's literally a plot device. It's a device that points you to the plot. Which is helpful because they just land on these Earths and they don't know what's going on. I guess Quantum Leap is kind of like that too. Like he lands right in wherever he needs to be to solve the problem. I don't know. I'm not a huge Quantum Leap head. Love a Scott Bakula moment. But I, it's been a long time since I watched reruns of Quantum Leap. 
Calvin sees that the talus manifests on him now because it was on Blink because she was the team leader with the talus and now it's chosen him. So he's suddenly the team leader, which is the position he was comfortable in on his own earth, but now he's super insecure about it. Also, Blink's replacement on the Exiles is Ileana Rasputina. This is during the period when magic was super dead. It had been super dead for a very long time. Magic had not been in a comic as like Magic the Superhero with a Soul Sword since 1989. This is now 2000-something. So it was very exciting. Everybody was really into this. And then... And she's even worst! <laughs> which was fun. It was fun. It was frustrating because we all wanted the real Ileana back, but she comes back a couple years after this in uh, Quest for Magic. So whatever, all worked out. But yes, she is super evil and she's, it's honestly really funny. Like he'll give them all orders on how they can like solve the problem and minimize casualties or whatever. And she'll be like, oops, sorry, I did it this way. And now all these people die. My bad. Next Earth. You know, like she's just very like not, she doesn't really care about the innocent life factor. Eventually, they wind up in a classic Ilyana situation, which is, oh no, something went wrong with the teleportation and we've all been scattered to the four winds, which happens to the New Mutants like at least three times, I feel like, over the course <laughs> of New Mutants in the 80s. They all land this time on different Earths. For most of them, the Time Broker is able to find them pretty quickly, but Mimic spends, this is like a very Cable kind of moment, he spends like three or four years on an earth overrun with the brood, living in like post-apocalyptic brood hell. He gets infected a bunch, but he has Wolverine's healing factor, which burns out the brood as per the classic brood saga. So he manages to make it all work. Eventually they get reunited and he doesn't tell them about his brood infection because he's like, well, my healing factor keeps that under control. Unfortunately... After he's back with the group, there is a fight between him and an alternate Earth version of the Thing. He gets the shit kicked out of him and his healing factor starts diverting to heal his wounds. And he realizes that that means that the brood infection is now going to overtake his body. It does. And it's a really bad situation. And while they eventually manage to fix it, they turn around to realize Mariko Sunfire has been killed in the crossfire uh, and that's when i stopped reading exiles yeah, right right before this we get when they're split up in the different realities we get as uh, marco having like a love story in her reality and she's just relaxing i think she's loving like mary jane watson in that world it's if mary I'm jane watson yeah and then she gets yanked away she's like i'll see you on our date like kisses her and then like disappears because she gets yanked forever i'm stream so sad yeah, and that's when I, like, listen, Judd Winnick was putting gay stories in comics, and I appreciate that, but this was one where I was just like, okay, fuck off, and, like, was done reading. I was like, you, you take her away from the girlfriend and kill her off. That's annoying to me. And I know this is a book where people die, but I was annoyed. I was annoyed. Because it's not a, like, that character's never come back, and she probably never will, like, is what the thing. Like, there's right. no, and the 616 Mariko was also dead, so it wasn't even, like, you could go read about the other. It was just like, well, that that character is just dead as hell, and uh, you just gotta get to deal with it. But the book continued. Chuck Austin's on it now. <laughs> he sure is. <laughs> 
Blink shows up because she is chosen as Sunfire's replacement. She's yanked back out of the time stream. I guess the Age of Apocalypse is really unstable or something. Mimic is so upset about the death of Mariko and so guilty about all of it that he swears a vow that he will never again take a human life because he's learned the value of life or whatever in losing Mariko. That is unfortunately when they meet Hyperion from the Squadron Supreme, an evil version of Hyperion from an alternate Earth, who is leading his own team of exiles, and the Time Broker has decided to let the two teams fight, and whoever survives in a duel to the death will become the new team of exiles. Twelve enter, only six will leave. Right. <laughs> Hyperion is pretty scary in this arc. It's not bad. Uh, you can feel the, the creakiness of the new writer, but it's fine. How long is Chuck on that book? In Exiles 46 is when we get the new creative team with Tony Bedard yes. and Mizuki Sakikibara, if I'm saying that correctly. And they bring Namora in. Yes, a blue version of Namora. She was cool. Yeah, I remember, cool. like, I wasn't reading the comic at this point, but there would be, like, online discussion of it still. And she would just, she just looked great in every story. And then we also get Beak on the team. Yes, our Beak, like 616 yes. Beak, is pulled out of our reality into Exile's world. We're now in like 2004, so yeah. it's after the Morrison run has ended. There's one good mimic story, I would say, in this period, which is yes. the one where <laughs> they meet the alternate version of him, the Big M, who like yeah, leads his the world's brotherhood. M. And the Big M, who has the words the Big M tattooed above his cock, <laughs> it's on his like lower abdomen, meets this heroic mimic, and because they're telepathic, reads all of our mimic, like Exiles mimic's experiences, and realizes he wants to be good and changes his ways, which is, it's very rogue in Rom the Space Knight. That one's kind of cute. This is around when the big reveal that's a retcon that's, I mean, I don't know, maybe Winnick intended to reveal something sinister eventually, but the big reveal happens that the Time Broker is totally fake. The whole story about the cascading realities is fake. And actually, this race of interdimensional insectoid aliens damaged the time stream themselves by accident and have basically been drafting these superheroes into fixing it for them and using the Time Broker as like a little puppet they hold out, which is a very funny idea that resolves a lot of the inconsistencies about how the exiles work. To just be like, oh, this is all complete horseshit and we've just been using you as free labor in our quest to repair the time stream because we fucked it up. Also, all your Earths were fine all along if you could just get back to them. But you can't, lol. <laughs> so it's pretty rough. I, I refuse to worry about it. I can't do it. <laughs> the only thing really key here is for Mimic is he ends up getting badly wounded and then adopting an alternate Deadpool's, Deadpool's powers power. to cure himself. Which heals him, but he gets the cancerous growths all over him and Blink is really freaked out by it. Yeah, she's like, I'm not fucking you. Would you look like that? Gross. Oh, no. And he's like, babe, just love me anyway. And she's like, <laughs> No, but they are going to find a way to fix it. They know that they can use like a healing serum or something, but they don't have time. There's no time. And he's still Deadpooled out skin wise in his final story, 
which is when they come face to face with Proteus, but not our Proteus, the Proteus from House of M. So kind of our Proteus. This is a thing that's very confusing about House of M, but don't super worry about it. <laughs> Somehow it's a different character. I guess it's maybe it's the maybe it's a world like House of maybe it's the one from I, I, doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Yeah, the only two villains from this entire series that are really genuinely scary are King Hyperion and then this version of Proteus, who yeah. has a high body count. He's killing people right and left. One of the things that he does is take Mimic's body, which is a huge, oh my god, because we all know that if Proteus possesses you, you fucking die. And a couple issues later, Proteus is like, all right, I've used up this body and just drops it on the ground and hops into a new one. Blink is devastated that Mimic's dead, and that's the end. That's it. That's the end of that character. Yeah. Uh, it's a pretty unceremonious end in, like, the 70s or something of a book that he had been one of the two main characters of from issue one. This is like when Lost is on TV and they're killing major characters, like, every three episodes, and you're like, no! And then Game of Thrones does the same thing. Mimic was just gone. He's just, it's very... This is crazier, though, because there was a revolving supporting cast, but Blink and Mimic and Morph were always in the book. Yeah. And then Super were not, quickly. Like, there was that brief period where Blink was gone and replaced by Ilyana, but then this moment here where Proteus kills Mimic and then kills Morph, which is crazy. Exiles goes on for a few more years. Nocturne lands on our Earth. Psylocke from 616 joins them. Yeah, Betsy and Sage end up joining the Exiles and then Claremont turns into new Exiles and then it ends. So don't worry about it because we don't have to worry about it anymore because that Mimic is dead. That Mimic had, however, been a pretty popular character by this point for several years. So I don't think it's shocking that... Afterward, there was some interest in the 616 version of Mimic because literally a year after Exiles ends in 2009, we get Dark X-Men and Dark Avengers and everything that ties into Dark Reign. Set the stage for us a little bit. Oh, goodness. Dark X-Men. Uh, Norman Osborn has taken over the government uh, and is serving as the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. and superhuman operations after Secret Invasion. There is a Dark Avengers that has formed. We're after the decimation now, to be clear. Yes. It's been quite a few years. The X-Men are in Utopia, and Norman Osborn has his fingers in every pie, and now he wants to uh, have his own version of X-Men. Uh, he's allied himself with Namor and Emma Frost and Mystique and Dark Beast. Emma's secretly spying for Cyclops, but it looks like Emma's betrayed us. And then, yeah, hilariously, Mystique poses as Jean Grey, who at this time is dead, which is extremely funny, just to troll them. She also is like, I'm Charles Xavier sometimes, but the funniest is when she's like, hi, I'm Jean Grey, representing Norman Osborn's X-Men. Everybody's like, you fucking bitch. You're a bitch for this, Mystique. <laughs> and Osborn's like, give me a group of pliable people that I can control. And on the list are Cloak and Dagger and Mimic and Weapon Omega, who we have to talk about for a minute. I hear you. Um, mm. He's fine. It's just the way we get to him is like exhausting. He. Do you want to take this one? Um. No, not especially. Why don't you take it away? 
uh, Wanda has wiped out all of the mutant powers in existence except for 198 people, and all that energy had to go somewhere. So Brian Michael Bendis gives us a story in New Avengers where a character in, I think it's North Pole, Alaska. His name is Michael Pointer. He takes on all this mutant energy. He's never manifested his power because he was never close to any other mutants because he was in this isolated part of Alaska. But after the energy, the mutant energy all zooms around after House of M, this is like a year later in New Avengers, as you said, it all is naturally drawn to this guy whose latent power was to absorb mutant energy. And it makes him, Connor has to say it, I can't, but it makes him crazy. <laughs> it makes him crazy. And he becomes a being called the collective made up of fragments of personalities from all of the mutants who've been decimated, including... Zorn, who they've now retconned into a real evil guy by this point. And Zorn, <laughs> we'll get into this more in a Zorn episode someday if I don't go into hiding to uh, avoid having to do that. I would love to come back on your show, but I don't want to come for the Zorn episode. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that to you. Zorn uh, assumes control of the collective because he has the strongest personality and starts killing people, slaughters the entirety of Alpha Flight, like just straight up kills them. And Alpha Flight's dead for a while. Uh, besides, like North Star and Aurora are off in X-Men books by this point, but it's everybody else. Then he gets a redemption arc kind of in Omega Flight where he becomes Weapon Omega. and Well, it's after, uh... so it's... Magneto and Zorn, the collective fight, and Magneto beats Zorn. It's a very literal way of putting <laughs> Zornito to bed, this story. And <laughs> in order to make up for the harm that the collective caused, now that he's in control of the power, Michael joins Department H or whatever as the new Weapon Omega, and he wears one of the Alpha Flight Maple Leaf uniforms and all of that, and he's their new guy. He has, like, his own Marvel Comics Presents series of, like, shorts. Oh, that's right. Yeah, in the relaunch. That lasts, like, I want to say a year, and then he pivots from there into Dark X-Men, which is a book by Paul Cornell and Leonard Kirk that spins out of the Utopia crossover Mimic and Weapon Omega are both tapped as mutants who are not close to Xavier, who are susceptible to Norman's manipulations as part of this team. The way Emma Frost introduces Mimic to Norman Osborn, she says, Rankin's been a washout of the past, but his power set and experience makes him a strategic get. Add to that the urge to please, not unlike a whip dog, and you've got a real power player. So Emma's view on this character is fascinating. <laughs> really funny. This is also the story that retcons in his bipolar diagnosis, which we're told he was given by Moira when she was <laughs> examining him during the time he was on Muir Island after Excalibur was canceled. Didn't know Moira was a psychiatrist, <laughs> but, you know, whatever. Just in light of Moira X, I love the... Because he's like, she got me on mood stabilizers. I'm like, well, that's good. To what end? Like, what nefarious plans did she have for Mimic? Was it because she was trying to create the five, even that? Like, retroactively speaking. Because they didn't have hope yet. So was he someone that she thought might work in the circuit? Because that would be kind of... Fascinating. I love this game. Is she, like, trying to get him under control? And, like, also be the person providing his psychiatric medication? 
was she evil all along? It's very fun. Well, she was. So we have to figure out. Well, I mean, she was and she wasn't. You get what I mean. But if she was Moira X all along, then whether or not she was evil all along, she was always up to something all along. And it's so it's fun to look back at some of these stories and go, why would she do that? If it's not out of the goodness of her heart, because Moira X doesn't have much of that even when she's being good. They do a story in Dark X-Men, the beginning, that focuses on Mimic briefly, where he's trying to get control of his powers, but he ends up killing a woman. Mm -hmm. But in his inner monologue, there's one moment where he goes, and I'm just going to read one section of this. He says, all those things other people can do, they just sleep inside me. Even if I don't want it to, sometimes it just comes out. Some of the scariest people in the world, Wolverine, the Hulk, Charles Xavier, they're all twisted up in me. And I can't always control myself. So the two key things is there a lot in his psychology here, but also he and Weapon Omega understand each other in a specific way too, because mm -hmm. Michael also loses himself constantly. That list of some of the scariest, most terrible things in the world, including Professor Xavier, I think is really interesting. Because again, if you have Professor Xavier's telepathy and you meet Professor Xavier, you might get a glimpse into that guy's head different from what other people got. Well, and now he's hanging out with Mystique, Norman Osborn, and fucking Moonstone, who we'll talk about. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love Moonstone. I talk love about her. an evil psychiatrist. I mean, Moonstone, Dr. Carla Sofen. If you are listening to this podcast and you hadn't already determined that Connor Goldsmith probably loves Moonstone, you're crazy <laughs> for that. Because that's a character right up my fucking alley. I love Moonstone. Me we too. just talked about Moonstone in the Necra episode because uh, Necra and Bling and Frenzy beat the shit out of Moonstone that oh, one time right. <laughs> when she was posing as Ms. Marvel. <laughs> Dark Avengers is really funny. Dark Reign is just really good. It's just a really good event. So anyway, he and Omega are on the team and they are like really good friends pretty much instantly. The other thing that's running through Dark X-Men is the return of Nate Gray. Go back to the Nate Gray episode for more on that if you care to. It's a good episode. You don't need to worry about it. But the point is that Mimic syncs with Nate Gray's unstable Omega telepathy and receives a precognitive vision of his own future in which he is married to Vera Cantor. They have a child. His power surges out of control and he obliterates both mother and child with his optic blast. It's pretty grim. And the way it's drawn is, um, well, listen, Leonard Kirk drew those Sabretooth miniseries by Victor Laval that you've read. So think about the way that the violence in those is really visceral. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty rough. I'm looking at it right now and I'm like, this baby sure is disintegrating on panel in this Marvel comic. It's it's a tough one to look at. In this era, there's a scene where Mimic is in therapy with Carla and he's just pouring his heart out about how awful his life is. Carla starts acting as his therapist, which is very, very funny if you know anything about because Moonstone is literally a sociopath. Uh, so... Well, she's just, she's not listening to him. She's like, here, have some No, Get out. She's like, here you go. Here's some pills. <laughs> and Osborne, and Osborne is having, uh, like, mimic force-fed, like, adrenaline packets to keep him, like, really amped up and out of control, which is fascinating also. So he's trying to figure out if the vision of the future is unavoidable, like, if that will come to pass. And eventually Nate Gray explains to him that the future is changeable and nothing is ever 100% set in stone, which is kind of a nice foreshadowing of Destiny's role now, actually, because Destiny's dead at this point and Marvel's because she was dead for like 30 years. But she 
always emphasizes that like the timeline can change and move in many different ways and her power was always to see the options like the possibilities that might happen so he's like one vision isn't going to tell you what will happen right now in this moment it's what will happen but you can change it and now you know Mimic's very distracted by this and he's having trouble focusing on anything besides am I going to marry the woman I love have a child and then accidentally kill them which you know fair reasonable thing to be a little bit preoccupied with eventually Mimic makes the wrong decision he could help the x-men and nate gray and instead he's loyal to his new team that does not have his best interests at heart although weapon omega does and it's in part to save weapon omega right so like there's and let's just we're just just to put it, they're pretty gay these two it's like they're chad is laughing i was rereading this and i read it twice like are they gay or are they not I think they're less gay here. They're yeah. really gay in the Christos Gage story. But there's enough here that you can see where Christos Gage was like, I think these two might be doing it. Yeah, there's there's so many X-Men, like they're deep friends, but maybe also they're fucking. It's Claremonty, <laughs> this one, is what I'll say. And Paul Cornell's good at that. Like um, in Captain Britain and MI13, the sort of situationship that develops between Spitfire and Blade is really sexy and mm. is very much just like, we're really good friends. Oops, we fucked. Should we date? We're vampires. Should we just continue to fuck? I don't know. Let's figure it out. But it's a very casual, like, it feels like a Claremont energy. Like, if Claremont could have put how many hookups were clearly implied in his work on the page, it's, like, very that, without it needing to be this, like, sweeping romance. And this kind of feels like that. It's like, you know, perhaps they're getting up to, like, furtive activity in the bunk, but we don't know. <laughs> I'm at a, I'm having, I'm having uh, Paul Cornell on the spot. I'll ask him this specifically. Ask him because if I'm Christos Gage and I'm looking at this story and it's like, okay, these two seem really close. And his great fear is that he will marry his girlfriend from the sixties, have a baby and then destroy his own <laughs> life and kill them. It's just like very, it has a very like heterosexual panic like a panic about heterosexuality vibe to it, you know? I know we haven't started X-Men Legacy yet, but Christos Cage, I did ask, like, did you intend these two to be gay? And he said, no, I met them as close friends. He said, but if I had been allowed to use them more because the title got canceled, maybe I would have developed something. That's the way he answered it to me. Well, that's a that's a very diplomatic way of putting it. And also, it's kind of like when we were talking to J.M. DeMatteis, you and I, with Sarah Sentry. That's a great episode of Grey Malkin Lane that people should listen to. It's on the Cerebro Patreon, actually, but go listen to it on the Grey Malkin feed. He was like, oh, no, the Iceman miniseries, all of the gay stuff is not intentional at all. But when we were explaining it to him, he was like, well, that's definitely in the comic. Like, it's right. <laughs> he's like, you're not wrong. He's like, I just didn't. It's not on purpose. But it's absolutely you're you're super right that it's there. You know, and that sometimes things are just I mean, Ben Romb didn't mean for Exodus and the Black Knight of his era to be gay. Which, which is, is so crazy. Insane, because that comic only makes sense if they're gay. Yeah. Yeah, they're real gay in that one. <laughs> ben, if you're listening, explain yourself. Uh, but anyway, so after Dark X-Men, two years or so go by and Mimic and Weapon Omega pop back up in X-Men Legacy, which was the Mike Carey title, but he has left and has been replaced by Christos Gage. This is X-Men Legacy 264. It's the run-up to Avengers versus X-Men, which is the big crossover event that year. Weapon Omega has become addicted 
to absorbing you. He's threatening out, actually, is what's happening. Fair, yeah, yeah. Osborne experimented on his power and made it addictive, which is actually the fix that Jordan Block and I came up with to say that maybe sinister tampering with Threnody was what did that to her power would be a way to fix that for her. But in any case, that's what happens here is like he can't stop doing it and it's dangerous because Calvin can absorb a little mutant energy at a time. He has taken Michael away to seclusion because, as we know, Cal loves to seclude himself in the woods with the person he's dating. <laughs> so they go out into the wilderness and, like, hide out, and Cal just brings him a little mutant energy at a time to feed him from Cal's own body to help, like, wean him off his addiction to absorbing mutant energy. Sadly, this very sexy, sensual, gay recovery 12-step program does not work. He is like, okay, I guess I need help. Who can help me with this? And in a stunning callback to the 1990 Marvel Comics Presents story, he thinks, when I had something like this happen to my power, Beast helped me. So he goes to the X-Men and he's like, please help, 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 help. And X-Men Legacy is kind of on and off a Rogue book. It's not really in this era, but she's still prominent in the book. So Rogue, now this is the first time Rogue and Mimic have ever really interacted that I can Correct. think of. Correct, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of interesting. He and Rogue basically like work as a mutant circuit kind of to siphon mutant power out of Michael because it's gotten to a point where it seems like Michael is going to explode from like all this mutant energy he's stored up and it's going to be like a nuclear bomb. Like it's going to be really, really bad when it happens. Their attempts to help don't help. They create more bombs. It becomes a whole thing. Christus Gage did his mimic reading because the next thing that occurs to him is, well, remember that time I fought the super adaptoid? <laughs> <laughs> so he thinks that he's going to die because now they've all doomed themselves. And he flies off to the lake where the X-Men fought the super adaptoid back in the 60s because he's like, this was the happiest moment of my life when I saved the X-Men from the super adaptoid and I want to be here when I die. Which is really, that's a lot. But it is his peak as a character in terms of like being a superhero who matters, right? It's that super yeah. adaptoid story. So it makes sense. He was the leader of the X-Men for that one day. <laughs> it's the time he saved the day instead of was the pawn for someone else. There's a couple cute moments between Mimic and Rogue here. Like Rogue understands him. She knows what it's like to lose your identity, to lose yourself, and, to, and then to lose that and then be back to yourself again. Uh, but it, there's there's a sad bend. And then, uh, and then poor Weapon Omega ends up in like stasis. Cal suddenly realizes while he's just like suicidally sitting by the lake, wait, the super adaptoid and I canceled each other out. So he and Rogue and Michael sit down and start absorbing from each other. And it creates this feedback loop of absorption that's fucking with all of them the way that he fucked with the super adaptoid. And it cures Cal and Rogue. Like they are able to release the excess energy. It doesn't work for Michael. So the only way to stop him from exploding is to shut his brain down telepathically and put him in a stasis coma. So they do. I think it's Rachel who does it for them. And so then he's going to be at the Jean Grey school to recuperate. And Cal refuses to leave his side. So Cal takes a job at the Jean Grey school as a teacher. When he's laying Michael to rest, tell me this relationship is not gay just based on this speech. And I'm paraphrasing slightly. 
he, you know, he says, I know you made me promise to live a life for myself. Not long ago, I wouldn't, been, wouldn't have been able to. I'd have been afraid to try, afraid to fail, or I'd have make a, made a mess of it. But Michael, there's no way I'm going to forget you because you were right there with me, backing me up, picking me up when I fell, believing in me when I didn't believe in myself. You're the best friend I ever had. You made me better than I was. I'll be here for you no matter who gets in the way, no matter how long it takes. I can be strong without you because I learned to be strong with you and because I know we'll be together again. It's weird to read that as just friends, right? <laughs> it's just, it's a very romantic speech. It just is. The only thing I could see that would be like, no, it's not, is because this comic came out in 2012 when you could say Mimic is gay, probably, without like a lot of trouble. So, I mean, it makes sense that it wasn't intended, but if this had been an 80s comic, I would have been like, these characters are married. <laughs> it's like a Mystique and Destiny speech. It's like that. It's just that. It's very strange to me that it wasn't on purpose, but whatever. And maybe another writer now can make it whatever they want. I mean, that is how these things work. It's in the text now, so it's up to other writers to do what they want with it. He hangs out at the Jean Grey school for a while as a teacher. Uh, Avengers vs. X-Men pops off, and he... This is actually kind of funny. He doesn't really, like, know the X-Men or the Avengers, so he's, like, he really isn't connected to anyone. So he's just kind of like, I'm just going to stay at the school with the kids. Um, <laughs> bye. You know, and so he stays with the students, but the Avengers attack anyway because of reasons. Don't worry, this is not an Avengers versus X-Men podcast. It's just not. I just don't. I bought the omnibus, and that's... Because I'm i committed to my bookshelf, but... It's so many issues. It's so, it's so, many, so many issues. And none of it matters except the end. It's truly a big don't worry about it. Uh, and you just don't have to worry about it. Utopia is over. That's all you need to know. Like, it's that's it. It kicks off the Bendis era. I haven't really covered the Bendis era characters yet, like Tempest and uh, Goldballs. And I think when I cover them, I'll probably have to talk more about it just because they spin out of that event. But I haven't yet, so it hasn't. Anytime I hear someone say the word gold balls out loud, I just, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. <laughs> well, it's supposed to be ridiculous. He was so pleased I heard him on Battle of the Atom recently, Bendis. It was a very fun interview. And he said that he was pleased as hell that Tempest and gold balls became part of the five. Because he's like, the new guy can totally throw out everything you do. And it was nice yeah. to see that Jonathan had a place for my characters in his concept. And they were like, well, were you shocked by the eggs? And he was like, I was shocked by the eggs. He was like, that is not at all what I was thinking. But guess what? It was great. He's like, it's fucking great. I mean, he took he took gold balls with him into his Miles Morales Spider-Man run. Yeah, and he really liked that character. He got he got shot in the school shooting issue. Like, uh, it's, yep. he, he does a lot with this guy. This is not a gold balls episode. So <laughs> the only thing I really the, the thing I love most from the X-Men legacy run is Rogue and Mimic's understanding of each other. And it, it ends with Calvin wanting to kind of go off on his own and figure out who he is. Well, not on his own. Very specifically, Michael wakes up and they decide to leave together. They leave together to go find out who they are together. Anyway, that's that. Well, and as he leaves, he adapts to Forget-Me-Not's powers and is like, bye, X-Men. That's when they come back. So they leave together in 275 and they come back in 300 to like round out everything because a lot of stuff sort of comes back around. Uh, and that's the Forget-Me-Not story, which this is now Spurrier writing mm -hmm, Legacy. Mm -hmm. 
Forget-Me-Not wants Omega and Mimic to take away his power because he doesn't like his power because Forget-Me-Not's power. Forget-Me-Not is kind of a gimmick character. The premise is that he's always been around, but we can't remember him even as readers because his power is that the second you're not looking at him, you forget that he existed. Spurrier loves this guy in the way Bendis loves gold balls. <laughs> sure does, yeah. You, If you're a current reader, you will have seen his story play out in Legion of Acts most recently. In this story, he wants them to take his power away. They're actually kind of intrigued at the idea of having this power, because as long as they can remember each other, the whole world can forget them, and they can be superheroes who are anonymous, and they have this whole plan. But it doesn't actually work out, because <laughs> Cyclops and Emma and Ilyana show up. This is the Bendisera and Canny X-Men, and they try to recruit them for the new mutant revolution. Although Emma here, again, is like, is he a mutant? Not 100% clear on what's going on there, but, you know, whatever. We'll take him. Back and forth. Uh, <laughs> they're all about to fight, but they copy Forget-Me-Not's power and the X-Men leave. And then when they stop copying Forget-Me-Not's power, they forget about Forget-Me-Not. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> With uh, Mimic and Weapon Omega flying off into the distance. And this is the last time we've ever seen Michael. We've never seen him again. Yeah, it's the last appearance of Weapon Omega. That's in uh, 2014. Four years later, Cal pops up alone in the extermination event, not because they've broken up, but because he gets kidnapped by Teen Cable. This story is where Teen Cable comes in and kills Old Cable. Teen Cable's whole mission is to send the 005 time travel teens back to the past because their presence is creating a time paradox. But in order to resolve the paradox, they have to make sure that everything is exactly as it was when they left and that they don't remember any of their adventures in the future. One of the problems is that Teen Warren has been given wings of cosmic flame by the Black Vortex. Do not worry about it at all <laughs> but <laughs> what what, <laughs> what ends up happening is that cable kidnaps them cuts cal's wings off and uses future tech to fuse them to warren's back because they are copies of warren's original wings so warren now has his original wings back which is Crazy, but it works. It leaves Cal without his wings and really bummed about everything. But when it's explained to him why it happened, he's actually like pretty chill about it and is even like, all right, I get it. Could have asked, I guess, but like, you know, but he ends up helping them because Ahab has come back in time to try and kill one of the time travel teens and therefore disrupt the whole timeline. Ahab is the Houndmaster and Slave Rachel Summers. Go back to the Rachel episode or something, but super don't worry about it mostly. The big thing is that Scott has been injured. And so Cal ends up putting on his visor and kind of like posing as him with the group. And so when Ahab strikes, he kills Cal instead of Scott. And Cal, who doesn't have wings and so just looks like a guy with Cyclops' visor on, dies in Bobby's arms and is like, I just wanted to help or whatever. And that's the end. You did such a good job keeping that succinct. This is such a complicated story. That's all they needed to know, though. 
this is my single favorite X-Men paradox. And there's a bunch, right? Like Longshot and Shatter are starry each other's dads or whatever. But this is the mimic meets the angel and adapts his own wings that were cut off in the future and grafted onto time-traveling angel's back. Right, because like <laughs> the time-travel teens went to the future before the X-Men ever met Mimic. So the right. wings that Mimic copied in the first place were his copy wings that had been put on Warren. From his adult self right before he died. And they did have like an actual funeral for him at the end of this. He's confirmed dead. It's a cute idea because he was the one who couldn't fit in with the O5 and so for the Tino Five's last adventure, it's like they're saved and the timeline is saved by Mimic, who then sends them back in time to reject him. It's fascinating. It works. There's a nice loop to it. But that's the end. He is then back on Krakoa. But the only thing that he's done is Kieran used him in Immortal X-Men 10 after Hope was assassinated by Sinister and they needed someone to do the resurrection to bring her back. They first call on Mimic and he just can't do it. The idea of copying dead hope is just so ghoulish to him that he like can't bring himself to do it. And so Sink steps in and says, I'll do it. And it turns out that only Hope can do it because otherwise her messianic power isn't in the sauce and Sinister. That's how Sinister is able to compromise people for sins of Sinister. On Krakow, he's originally listed as a potential backup for Hope. But yeah, here they say it's he not going to work. Yeah, they say that Sink was resurrected as one of the first resurrections because he was a backup for Hope. One assumes that Mimic was also an early resurrection for the same reason. Yeah. They're both listed as potential backups for her, but then once it became necessary, he couldn't stomach doing it, which I think is interesting. But also it turns out that he was right to think it was wrong to try because he's not the Messiah and he can't do it. And Sink, as someone who is much more confident in his ability to copy these powers because he has a much higher success rate, is like, I'll do it. And it turns out that without Hope's je ne sais quoi, it's a problem. But it is notable that Sink was capable of doing it, like could mm-hmm. resurrect people. It was just that the system had been compromised and Hope's energy burned out Sinister's infection. It's not that Sink wasn't able to do the circuit. It was just that something in the milk was not clean. So maybe Cal could have done it. We'll never know. And he opted not to try. And that's the last we've seen of him. Uh, And that's that on both versions of Mimic. I like this character. I just, I said it earlier. I feel like there's other characters who do it better than he does. You know? Yeah, that's a problem for him. I think now is a great time to get into the listener questions. Dante Wise writes, Hello, uncanny host and astonishing guest. My question is mostly about our resident sad boy mimic, but can be applied to a few people from the Silver Age, like Changeling, who was renamed Morph, and Vanisher. What was it about them that writers, and presumably Bob Harris, felt the need to have resurface in the 90s comics? Thank you for the answer and the wonderful show. Darth Frenzy, he, they, on the Discord. Praise Spencer for incepting that space. Well, Vanisher had appeared a couple times because he was the guy running the Fallen Angels in the 80s. Uh, He'd been around a little bit, but there certainly is a resurgence in the 90s of some of these 60s characters. I think part of that was that Harris wanted to bring the X-Men back to what he saw as its core premise to get away from Claremont's really expansive plotting and get back down to like mutants. They're a threat. The world hates and fears them, but they fight anyway, you know. And so part of that, I think, was, I mean, 
turning Magneto back into a bad guy is the biggest example of that 60s-ification that happens around 1991. But you also see Toad come back. You see Unis come back. You see a lot of characters you hadn't seen a ton of. Sauron comes back, and he hadn't been seen in a very long time by that point. Uh, and Mimic's another one where I do feel like they kind of brought back some of these Stan and Jack or Roy Thomas and Neil Adams characters because it felt grounding in some way. I mean, I think Quicksilver moving to X Factor probably was also kind of part of that. I think uh, I think part of it, you know, there's a long list of characters you can use if you got to put a villain team together or if you want to have a throwback. The, Mimic is the guy that was kicked out of the X-Men originally. So it shows that you have a like deep continuity knowledge, but also he's a character that has a, an interesting juxtaposition from the X-Men. Nobody really explores that, but he's the one who might have been in in the same way that Changeling was, right? Right. Uh, it's, it's interesting because he was the first, but he's never but been But Changeling used. is kind of an interesting case because he's retconned in after he he's dead right so like mm -hmm. it's different here where it's like an experiment that thomas tried that just didn't work yeah yeah it's kind of more tragic in a way like there's a reason that this character lingers in a way that changeling never does it's morph the aoa character who has lingered through exiles and then you know and they named him morph in aoa because of the cartoon obviously they couldn't call him changeling in the cartoon because beast boy at dc was called changeling at the time and so there was a trademark issue well and the the, the thing that made mimic cool at the beginning was that he had the powers of the five original x-men and that's still the same thing that makes him cool now it's it it's still the, makes him cool the only thing that makes him cool in some ways yeah it's just it's cool it is just you look at him you're like that's neat greg m writes hello my main question from the mimic episode is why is he so hot hoping someone can shed some light on why i've suddenly developed a huge crush in the x-men's biggest sad boy copycat thanks gay juggernaut maybe don't read out my full name if you do answer this please so i shortened the last name i think it's what we said he has that in the, the early appearances he has that very bad boy appeal but like in a very polished package like he looks like warren but he's a bad boy and there's something that i think is appealing about that and then in the 90s he's just drawn as like a romance novel cover with a beard <laughs> You know, I don't find him as hot in that era just because long hair wild man is like not really my aesthetic, but definitely it's a look. He's thick and he's got uh, he's got a charisma to him. He's got a, a, a swagger to him some of the time. He's muscular and handsome and, and a little rough around the edges. Particularly when he mimics 60s Beast, who's like the, the, the thick wrestler guy, right? Like who's so yeah. muscly and sexy in a lot of his images. It's just, it's good. He looks like one of those Bob Miser photograph kind of guys. Like, it's a bit of rough trade. And Exiles Mimic has that kind of like super hot built boy next door vibe. He's he's labeled as sexy with the best ass in comics, you know? Like yeah, I mean, th that one is also like, they tell you, Exiles Mimic, every character tells you how hot he is all the time. So it's kind of like just a thing you understand from the characters saying it. And you're like, oh, I guess he is. Dylan writes, hello, Connor and guests. I just finished reading the complete original run of Exiles and thought Mimic was a really engaging character with such a fun and video gamey power. I haven't read the Silver Age stuff, so that was my introduction to the character, which I imagine is true of many other readers. Are there any other characters you could name whose alternate universe counterpart is more prominent than them? Why do you think it's the case with Calvin? Were his Silver Age stories not well received or well collected? What do you think drew Judd Winnick to this total rando? Looking forward to the new season, Dylan, Delon the Shi'ar Magister from the Discord 
it's in part what we were just saying, which is that he has all of the powers of the original X-Men. So if you're doing a riff on the X-Men, this is also true of Dark X-Men, putting him on the team gives you Optic Blast. It gives you Iceman power. It gives you Angel Wings. And those are all things people associate with X-Men as a vibe. So it enables you in one character to hit a bunch of different X-Men tropes. And I think that that is the core appeal of using the character in a book like Exiles, which is X-Men, but off somehow, a little off kilter. So I think that's what appeals to Winnick. You'd have to ask him, but like that would be my guess. Well, and the interview, the interview I mentioned earlier, Winnick had this like childhood headcanon about this character that he loved. Right. He had personally liked the character when he was a kid reading the comics. So there was that too. But I just think, again, what we were saying earlier about how like putting Storm on your team makes a couple characters redundant. Mimic allows you to have all of the original X-Men's powers on your team, and then the other four or five people in your book can do something weirder, and the book will still feel like X-Men. I think that's a big part of it. In terms of other characters whose AU version is more famous, Blink is the really obvious one. I mean, that's yeah. why Exiles exists. And Morph. Morph, although the most famous Morph is the one from the cartoon. I would argue. So it's a little different there, but certainly both are more famous than Changeling from 60s X-Men, <laughs> who, you know, although he looks a lot like the character from the cartoon, they really did adapt the 60s character into that cartoon design, which is kind of fun. Yeah. I think Valkyrie, if they hadn't, this is a complicated one. I think that the Tessa Thompson Valkyrie is going to be and is already more famous than any other version of the Valkyrie character. And I think if they had not introduced Runa, the queer black Valkyrie character who now seems to be taking on that role in the comics, Salyan Ahmed did that Exiles volume with yeah, yeah. the Tessa Thompson Valkyrie. And I think that if they hadn't created Runa, that character probably would have stuck around and become like the main Valkyrie because that's just a case where I mean Nick Fury is the other really big one right where like ultimate Nick Fury and then movie Nick Fury were so influential that they eventually retconned in that 616 Nick Fury had a black son named Nick Fury Jr. who then takes over S.H.I.E.L.D. because they were just yeah. like we gotta figure this out but within the comics alone I think that the biggest examples are Mimic and Blink and morph if you don't count the cartoon morph. So that's, and that's basically why Exiles worked as a book because people wanted to read about those characters. There's a, I'm thinking of like Big Hero 6 too, right? Like it was a comic mm. book and then it became this giant movie based on the comic, but nobody ever read the comic. I mean, like if you're just speaking in general, then the answer is the Guardians of the Galaxy because sure. no one thought that that was going to be <laughs> a culture defining hit the way that it became. I mean, to the point where Every movie now fucking feels like Guardians of the Galaxy because it was that big a hit in the way that like every movie became Iron Man after Iron Man, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So I would say that's the answer. Oh, another example that's now happening that's actually Exiles related is that Peach Momoko's Marco Yoshida is already way more famous than the original version ever was. And I'm surprised, I've said this a couple times in the show, that they haven't brought Mariko more into 616 stuff to tie into the popularity of that Demon Days version of the character. She's the Scarlet Samurai now, right? Am I getting Yeah, better? but that's what Peach based the Demon Days version on. So it's like already in the 616 comic. Just turn her into the Demon Days version more closely and just like run with it is sort of how I feel about it. I don't know. I have a pitch. 
Um, <laughs> Gabriel from Austin writes, oh, that's not far from where I grew up. Which mimic do you like better? And if it was possible, do you think they could have brought Exiles mimic into 616 and made it work, given that he was both an X-Man and an Avenger? Or would he be too overpowered? I think he would have been fine power-wise. I just think it's, as we've seen with Blink, it's hard when there's a 616 version of the character. What's funny about Blink is they never had this problem until Necrotia when they brought back 616 Blink because like 616 Blink had been dead since 93. Right. It was just the AOA version who existed and that was fine. She did like almost a hundred issues of Exiles. She was the star of Ahmed's version of Exiles as well. It's just that by the time Ahmed was doing his Exiles, we had the 616 Blink running around again, which has made it tricky for that character to persist uh, and I so I think similarly it's like if you're gonna have mimic in your comic you already have to explain who mimic is and then you run into like the Nate Gray problem of like if we have cable why do we have Nate Gray you know like that becomes difficult I'm really fond of the 616 mimic I feel like he's never gotten his chance to shine what the exiles mimic does for me more than anything is shows me what's possible for our mimic what he could become uh so I mean I love both characters but I'm I'm particular toward this classic guy who's so tied to the x-men but so separate from them at the same time I think it's also like that's the Lee Kirby character mm-hmm the AU version that Judd Winnick made in 2001 is never going to be bring back the Stan Lee character from x-men 19. That's just always going to win at the end of the day. Dracarys and Life Incarnate. Hello, Connor and Gus. My question for you is, if you had Cal's power, which mutants or superpowered people would you want to mimic yourself? And while we're here, how long will it be until Cal and Michael Pointer become a couple? They just vibe. You're not wrong. We're with you on that. I think they're already a couple. Yeah, but I think Michael will have to like appear again in a comic for that to be established. But if they establish it in a very throwaway line, I would not at all be surprised. Like if some writer just threw that out at some point. Or like if they just showed up together at like the Pride Parade at a Pride issue. Like that would not shock me at all, you know? That'd be adorable. Yeah. But as for copying and whatnot, it's hard to say. I mean, like, I've always I, I've always been drawn towards the telepaths, but actually having telepathy seems kind of hellish, so I don't really know. I would love to fly. I want, like, perfect metabolism and the ability to teleport. That's what I teleportation. want. Teleportation. Just... Yeah, no, that's an easy one. Yeah, I'm hot all the time. Choice. I can teleport where I want to. Invisibility could be fun as well, but I don't know that I'd want any other powers. Fly, I mean, flying would be cool. Yeah, I'm like too body dysmorphic for shapeshifting. I would drive myself <laughs> insane. So that's like probably for the best that I can't. Uh, yeah. Mm, and if I was invisible, I'd just want to commit crimes. So take that one off the list. <laughs> Let's not. Why, why tempt yourself, you know? So... Great, great boring answers we're very i'm a 44 year old dad i was gonna say we're very in our 30s and 40s and like just not that fascinating anymore james santana writes hello connor and guest i can't believe you're covering mimic one of the most underappreciated x-men characters of all time the last couple of years mimic's been written as kind of a coward when it comes to using his powers to their full potential unlike exiles mimic that's a shame in my opinion but on to questions one who would win in a fight between rogue hope and mimic and do they all have a group hangout about how their powers copy other people's powers or what makes one better or worse than the other uh i think that hope would win because she is the omega so that's a pretty easy fix i think that you throw sync in that 
party though, and all of them should hang out with Weapon Omega. They should all have like a little club. <laughs> Throw Prodigy in there too. It'd be a great time. Yeah, he can come. He has a specific copying, but he does it, you know. Actually, and, and Copycat, I'm sure she's back on Krakoa. Super Scrolls there, the super adaptoid. No, shows no, no. <laughs> the absorbing man is hanging out. The super adaptoid knows what he did. <laughs> Two, why isn't Mimic considered an Omega mutant when he has very similar powers to Hope? It's a matter of degree. Why isn't Lorna considered an Omega-level mutant, but Magneto is? Because they've been able to find Lorna's limit, and yeah. they haven't been able to find Eric's. The real answer is because he's not on the list that Jonathan Hickman made. But in-universe, that's the answer. When I was a kid, I wrote I, one of the first letters I ever wrote into Marvel, which was not printed, but I still have it, was uh, to Excalibur. And I asked, why doesn't Megan just shapeshift into whoever she needs to? And then she has their power sets. But looking back at that letter as an adult, I'm like, because that's bad storytelling. Because that breaks it would be the really comic. Boring. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> that would be dull. So, like, the practical answer is just because the point of the Omega list was for there to be fewer Omegas. But... Practically speaking, you can have the same power and not be an Omega. I do, I mean, I don't know. I have thoughts about Lorna. I think that Lorna should also be an Omega-level mutant because I think that she and her father should have been like the two poles of the Earth. I think that would have made more sense, but I didn't get to write the list. This is the thing. Everybody has their one quibble <laughs> with the list, right? You know, Rachel also, I was like, Rachel has to be an Omega-level mutant, right? Like, she was the host of the Phoenix Force, and, like, she is also the daughter of Scott and Jean in the same way that Cable and Nate Gray are. But point is, she's not on the list. Fuck you. Neither is Cable, you know, because he the T.O. virus knocks him out, I guess. So, like, the point is, it's his very limited list. The real answer is... Anything he can do, Hope can do better. Hope can do stuff that he can't do. And Hope has no measurable limit that we've been able to find at all. The question was raised about Sync. Cecilia thought that Sync might be an Omega-level mutant because he was basically, after Resurrection, reaching Hope levels. But then we discovered, as the story went on, that when he uses Recall to bring a power back, it rapidly ages his body, which is a pretty nasty limitation on the power, which means, in my mind, he's not an Omega-level mutant, as it turns out, which is okay. Most mutants are not Omega-level mutants, and I think Hickman is right to say that there shouldn't be very many. I do think it's really fun that all their powers work differently. And also, we've referenced this song three fucking times, but in the Dark X-Men era, Mimic, when he's fighting Iceman, I think, literally sings, anything you can do, I can do better, like on panel yeah. in the middle of the fight. <laughs> that actually just... leads into a great question. Owen writes, hello, host and honored guest. The X-Men roster is usually pretty good about avoiding overlap and mutant abilities unless you're a clone or from an alternate universe or a child from the future, but that is actually from the present or a clone of the child from the future, but actually from the present or <laughs> Monet Sanqua, I suppose. Mimic is the first yet least prominent of four characters with very similar power sets. I find it interesting that their gifts are used to characterize each character and give a peek into their mind space. Rogue's power can be destructive, forces her to distance herself from others. Much of her arc centers on keeping people at arm's length, both physically and emotionally, until she can work past her hangups. Sync's power is about connection and understanding. By barring Jean's telepathy, he gains a better understanding of her responsibilities, especially when it comes to what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Hopes is about unification, teamwork, taking five individual mutants, turning them into the five, creating Krakoan resurrection. But Mimic's power speaks to his deeply rooted feelings of inadequacy and lack of self-worth. Anything he might offer, he feels he has to take from others, like the moon reflecting the sun's light but never producing its own. 
Are there other characters with similar powers that highlight or illustrate aspects of their larger character arcs? Thanks again for such a great pod of the surrounding community, Owen, inner dialogue on the Discord. I think that you're spot on with all of those analyses of those four characters and the way that their powers function slightly differently. Yeah, well done. Yeah. With Hope, I think it's also to inspire. I agree that like with Sync, it's to connect. And with Hope, it's to inspire awe as well. Like she is a messianic figure because she is like a godlike figure in that way. You just look at her like, what's going on over there? She's gene-like in that sense. Like that's, I mean, they all, the Hope gene connection is complicated. It's not a Hope Summers episode, but like you get what I'm saying. I would say that in terms of other characters, Copycat, who's another one, is interesting. I just mentioned her moments ago because she and Mystique are different. Mystique can't copy powers. Copycat can, but only if she has close contact with you on a regular basis. So she's more powerful than Raven in that way, but it causes her to be extremely codependent whereas Raven is completely independent outside of Irene. There's like an interesting characterizing beat there. I think that the different ways different characters use telepathy is really instructive. I think that Charles and Jean have a very different approach from Emma and Monet, who have a very different approach from Betsy, who has a very different approach from Rachel. Like I think all of those characters complement each other in different ways. I think looking at Johnny Storm, who heats things up, and Bobby Drake, who cools things down, and how they each feel about their own power is kind of interesting and different. Yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Writers love to take a character's power set and turn it into like a person. Like Quicksilver comes to mind, where you get like lines where he's like, Quicksilver is so fast, but can he ever outrun himself? Right? Like, there's those types of things in stories all the time. There's a, I mean, speaking as the social worker, there's a, there's a lot of psychology to characters and their power sets. Rogue and Iceman are two amazing examples of this, where their powers are underutilized until they learn how to believe in themselves, or they heal the trauma from their past, and then suddenly they can access stuff. Mimics never had that moment but the exiles mimic is the version of look at this incredible world hero and what he could become if he learned how to have self-control and uh, be like self-confident so i think he's a version of someone who never got to do that uh, and i think that's why he and michael get each other in some ways because their powers define who they are but they also lack the ability to control what they're doing yeah and they're really not capable of being independent with them they need it in a way that like sink and hope it's useful to them to copy things. In Michael and Cal, it's very much like a hunger, a need to absorb, to borrow, which I think is part of Cal's complex about everything. I don't know who I am when I'm not doing yeah, this. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Aaron Salisbury writes, Greetings, Connor, esteemed guests. Since Calvin's supposed to be from Passaic, New Jersey, I was wondering what Jersey stereotypes you think he possesses. <laughs> Does he know how to pump gas? Does he talk endlessly about Wawa? Wawa, I think of as more of a Philly thing. When he copies powers, <laughs> does he say under his breath, it's a Jersey thing? Any light you can shed in the matter would be helpful. Thank you, Aaron. That uh, is really funny. His father was so controlling that I don't know if he was really like hanging with the Jersey boys and getting... <laughs> into the culture you know i just don't know he was absorbing all their shit and then living in a cave i, I don't know <laughs> but he absorbed so much like he probably cooks a mean baked ziti he probably can drive a motorcycle real good on the twin pike you know <laughs>
there's a really funny story waiting to be told about Calvin and Michael off. And when one of them ex like is believing in the relationship, the other one does. But when one of them doubts, the other starts to doubt too. And they end up in like a spiral with each other. That'd be amazing. That is funny. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan Yoder writes, Hello, Connor, esteemed guest. is both a flat scan and someone who started getting into comics in just the last few years. Both your podcasts have been wonderful. They provide many unique points of view on these stories that were previously unconsidered by me, which adds great depth in my reading. The community is also fantastic. It's great to have so many friendly people to be excited about comics with. Shout out to the mod team. So I want to thank you both and say keep up the good work. As an Exiles head, there are dozens of us. I just had to write in for this episode. <laughs> my question about Mr. Rankin is in regard to his power copying limits. Given how long the Exiles version spent with the Exiles, and how long, presumably, Calvin has now been on Krakoa. Why has Cal never permanently copied anyone else's power besides the O5? Is he simply at his limit already? If he starts permanently copying everyone's powers on Krakoa, he'd either be insanely powerful or maybe die from juggling all the energy. Side note, what would happen if all the power-copying mutants tried to copy each other's powers at the same time? Best wishes, Brendan, beating Yoder on the Discord. We know the second part because that is what he and Michael and Rogue did to neutralize each other. Right. It creates like a vacuum feedback loop that drains them all. The first question, it's not super clear why the O5 powers became permanent in the first place. It's never really been explained. I think it's because those are the powers he absorbed before his power got fucked with in like ways that are still not super clear to us. I don't think he can permanently adopt any other powers is what I'm saying because he doesn't seem to function like the Exiles version. But maybe he does. Again, this would owe to like whatever a writer wanted to do. It hasn't been super well established. I like the limitations on the Exiles version. This character, you can kind of blame his dad's machine from that Marvel Comics Presents story. That's what I think is the easiest way to say is that like those were the powers he had when he touched the machine. Because <laughs> again, listen, his dad was like, don't worry, it won't give him the powers permanently. It'll take them away. But dad also thought that his explosives were going to seal the tunnel and not kill him. <laughs> so like, you know, just not the best scientist as we established But his dad's earlier. also a sentient hologram. I mean, who knows? But there's his powers are also pretty inconsistent. Sometimes he's got to live in isolation because he's killing people by being around them. Other times he's fine living on Krakoa and being around everyone. In uh, in the Excalibur book, like he takes on all the Excalibur powers for a while. Right. Uh, it's, it's very wildly inconsistent with the six one six version which is why i really like the limitations placed on the exiles version yeah no i agree and i wouldn't be opposed to them just retconning this version into power wise the exiles version because i think that that worked and it would let him change it up more in a way that could be useful to the character because then he is different from rogan singh and hope like Hope can copy multiple powers at the same time and Rogue can if she touches everybody. But like Sync is really like one at a time and all of them at a time on the team, but less powerful is its own twist that would mean that you could have him and Sync in the same story without being crazy redundant. So I think that would be good, honestly. The idea of having to give one power up to take on another you have to pick because Exiles Mimic could choose like which one. It was like an RPG. He could like choose which skill to overwrite. Yeah. But when he gets Deadpools, then it like he can't get rid of it because it's like it's right. going to kill it. Like, it's, it. There's some there's some fun things to explore. There's there. good twists and turns there. Yeah. Thomas Crawford writes, hello, Connor, esteemed guest. Hope all is well. Thanks for pulling another character out of the weird little guy's bag because that's where most of my favorite X characters tend to live. <laughs> I wanted to ask about a flashback Mimic has in the Dark X-Men era, which is one of the most did they know Moira moments I've come across. Describing Moira, Mimic says, she was a good woman, but I still worry. I'm still waiting for the other shoe to drop. 
The panel ends in a shot of the medication Moira prescribed him. Ominous much? <laughs> this is what I was pointing out earlier. Like, that scene reads really creepy now. My actual question, what do you think Moira sees in Mimic? Is that he's a powerhouse that would be easy to manipulate? Does she even know that he was a potential stand-in for hope in a mutant circuit? Or did she see value in propping him up to destabilize at a future opportune moment? Would love to hear what you think he means to her. As always, thank you for the amazing conversations and for creating and maintaining this wonderfully positive space in comics fandom. Best Tom Crawford, free Tom force on the Discord. Let me take this one from Moira as she was then, and then let sure. me have you take it from Moira as she is now. Moira as she was written then, this is legacy virus Moira. She's very much in like the scientist assist role, and she's just trying to help out a mutant. And toward the end of her life, like she yeah. was going to die soon. That's how Ben Rabb wrote her, as like the support character who's dealing with reckoning with having the virus. But with modern Moira, I would love to hear Connor spin on this. <laughs> I think, well... I think she was aware, roughly, of what she needed to create the Resurrection Circuit, which five mutants she needed power-wise. But she needed them to be powerful enough. She needed an Omega-level reality warper, an Omega-level time manipulator, an Omega-level power manipulator, an Omega-level healer, and then the fifth is... Gold balls. <laughs> right, who is his own weird anomaly. You needed to find one of each of those. And until she found the most powerful form of each of them, I think that she was looking at options, at alternatives. We don't know if she met Mimic in her previous lives. It's very possible she met him in life four when she was Moira Xavier because that life seems to be very similar in how it played. That's how she knows a lot of things that are going to happen because this timeline in Life 10 is close to the timeline in Life 4. So I don't know. It's an interesting question though, isn't it? There's a lot of these moments for Moira, like scanning Jean after she got the Phoenix. And like, uh -huh. if you're looking at Krakoan intentions, like what, what's her deal? Well, or all the stuff that she did to Magneto when he was uh -huh. baby Magneto. Oh, baby Magneto. And then that scene where she's like, Sean, it's all me fault. You know, and it's like, <laughs> it's just very, and she's like sobbing. And now you read it and you're like, this is weird. Skin suit Moira is a very different version. But it all works for me. I love it. I love honestly. it so much. Robert Bell writes, Hello, Connor and guest, longtime listener of your phenomenal podcast, Cerebro, writing to extend my sincerest gratitude for all the extraordinary work you've done since the start of the pandemic. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the inspiring and welcoming community that you foster on the Discord server. It's hard to be a part of a group that shares a deep passion for X-Men and comics, engaging in humorous conversations, and appreciating the artistry and complexity within this insane Marvel universe. Your insight and unique perspective rekindled my love for the X-Men franchise, something I'd largely set aside since the Morrison run. Listening to your analysis and commentary has been enlightening, making me revisit the characters with a renewed interest and deeper understanding. The characters nuances, historics, and sexual themes you highlight have given me a newfound appreciation for this side of the Marvel Universe. Well, thank you. That's very, very sweet. Now onto my question. I think we've all had that one or two C-list characters that we have an affinity for, and for some reason, I've hitched my ride to Galvin Rankin. Mimic's a character I've been particularly curious about ever since Judd Winnick wrote a version of him in his Exiles run. I found the character to be particularly fascinating with a lot of potential. Despite this, it seems Mimic hasn't had a significant presence in any particular era of X-Men, and I'm intrigued as to why. Claremont never really touched on the character, but he'd keep popping up every couple of years whenever a writer needed a heavy hitter after that. So what gives, Connor? Considering his versatile abilities, do you think it's the writers finding it difficult to incorporate such a character into storylines without overshadowing others? Or perhaps he's viewed as too similar to other characters like Rogue and now Sync? 
I'd love to hear your take on the matter. Once again, thank you, Connor, for all you do. Three your dedication, passion, shine through in every episode. I'm truly grateful for the impact it's had on my appreciation of X-Men. Best regards, Robert, Lara G on the Discord. Well, thank you. That's incredibly sweet. I think that Rogue is the biggest thing. I think this is also why Sync was seen as the disposable one. Like, I think the reason Sync was killed off at the end of Gen X is a couple different things. And one is that he was like Cypher, the character all the other characters liked. So it traumatized all of them. But another one is he has a power that one of the most famous X-Men characters also has. So he wasn't, you know, and so I think with Mimic, that's his biggest problem is that like he's dead from 1973 to 1990. And in the time intervening rogue becomes one of the biggest characters in the franchise. So I think that's really the biggest factor. So much of Rogue's early journey is her dealing with the Carol Danvers part of herself and trying to find her heroism. What makes Mimic interesting to me, I mean, the O5 powers thing is really fun, of course, but it's the mental illness part of him. Like, you get to ask loopy questions like, is do his powers change when he's manic versus when he's depressed? Or do his powers influence when he's manic and or depressed? And when he's medicated, how does that alter his powers? There's a, there's a lot to explore around that, plus his ability to adapt to the personalities and desires of other people again he literally becomes wolverine with a berserker nature at one point so there's a there's a part of him like learning how to control himself that he he just needs that story where he either loses it or he is able to gain it or both remy falding writes hello connor and gray malkin i'm from long island but i mostly talk like my brooklyn raised jewish mother so you can attempt that accent if you wish i kind of talk like that already to be perfectly honest I'm a longtime listener and was excited to find out you were finally covering my favorite mentally ill kindred spirit, Calvin Rankin, who I only got to know about because of his much more confident and put together counterpart from Earth 12. I was a big fan of Exiles Mimic and was so sad to see him get killed by Proteus. Imagine my excitement when I learned 616 Calvin would show up in Dark X-Men. But instead of the cool guy who, despite his admitted issues, was a strong leader, was well-versed in the powers, and was considered the Captain America of his universe, 616 Calvin was insecure, unstable, fragile, and decisive. While this Calvin was different, I found I liked him even more, as he was someone I identified with more. Like him, I struggled with mental health and connecting with people, as well as feeling comfortable in crowds. The recent scene in Immortal X-Men really spoke to me. The differences between the two characters are very notable. Exiles Mimic highlights everything 616 Mimic is not. Do you think it's just different realities, or is it the environment and support system Earth-12 provided Calvin with that allowed him to be his best self? On Earth-12, mutants aren't nearly as persecuted as they are on 616. In fact, they're celebrated. On top of that, Charles and the X-Men welcomed Calvin with open arms in a way they didn't quite do on 616. Did the loving family and society make Calvin the man he is on Earth-12, or am I reaching? Love the podcast, and hope Calvin and Michael Pointer are living happily together on Krakoa as they deserve it. Love, Rem Springer, Remy on the Discord. I think it's both. Because we know that part of why mutants are not as persecuted on Earth-12 is because Mimic and the X-Men are so popular on Earth-12. So that's something he did. It's not something the world did for him, right? And Mutant X is similar, by the way. Again, the premise in Mutant X on some level is that Havoc was so popular as a self-assured Havoc not living in Cyclops' shadow that he became like the most beloved superhero on Earth and mutants are much less oppressed in Mutant X because Havoc and the Six are so well-loved. And that's sort of also what's going on with Earth-12 Mimic. I do think it's that he was welcomed into Xavier's with open arms, but that's in part because he meets them under a different circumstance, right? Like the way he met them on 616 was extremely confrontational and weird and bad. and was the whole thing with Vera and like all of that. 
I think that's very different from this teenage bank robber got linked up with the Brotherhood. Let's offer him a chance at redemption, which is what they do with Wanda and Pietro in 616. They offer to let them join the X-Men and they decide, no, we're going to strike off on our own and then join the Avengers instead. It's the same thing with Sunfire. It's like, would they be a much happier and more put together person if the X-Men had said, don't stay here crying, come home with us? Like, yes, they probably would have, but the X-Men didn't do that. Yeah, but it's a what if story. Yeah. It's what if the X-Men had kept Mimic? Here's what was possible. Dennis Seng writes, Hi, Connor, esteemed guest chat. It's here. It's finally here. The first episode center on a character primarily associated with my all-time favorite X-Book, Exiles. As mentally ill as that makes me sound, <laughs> I think Winnick's exploration of X-Canon through the lens of the real world just really spoke to me in my early college years. In that particularly vulnerable time when every newly adult millennial thought we should apply to be on real world back to New York. Anywho, under our good friend and hunkamunka Cal, I'd love to hear your thoughts on his romance with Blink. From the outset, it seems like a relationship that's built as a contrivance in a typical showman's fashion, but then it kind of works, actually really works. When Mimic's infected by the brood and accidentally kills Sunfire, the anguish that he and Clarice go through is palpable and is fully realized as many other ex-couples with far more panel time. Why is that? Is Winnick projecting some of his own relationship to his real-world castmate and now wife Pam? And in the era of institutionalized polyamory that is Krakoa, how do we find this type of forced-together romance in the future? Are the stakes for romance in these stories just so much lower now that the island is about free love and making more mutants? Secondary question just for fun, which real-world cast would make the best X-Men team, and why is the only right answer Seattle? Until they replace that bitch Heather Hudson with the far superior black Sasquatch <laughs> Heather Hudson. Make my cerebro, Dennis Sang. Oh, Danny, on the Discord. I would not call... 616 Heather Hudson a bitch I would call her not my favorite character in the world <laughs> we just talked about her in the Necra episode a lot of these characters came up in that Necra episode mm -hmm. acts of vengeance Necra gets the shit kicked out of her by Heather Hudson completely at random which is I mean not that at random she's Necra but like it's funny because she's just minding her own business <laughs> I think Mimic and Blink it's a wartime romance they are pulled out of their reality they only have each other and they're going from reality to reality they don't know if they're going to be their day a week a month a year uh also as a writer you want romance so everyone's paired off and so Nocturne is with Thunderbird Sunfire is gay and you've got Mimic and Blink which leaves more so horny all the time he's like someone fuck me please in so many of those exiles issues but I like them together they feel real when Calvin is haunted he pulls away from Blink Blink's gone for a while he has to deal with that then there's the Deadpool thing later I, I like their relationship I think it's interesting yeah, I think that it works much better than Sam and Tabby at recreating that tortured Scott and Jean vibe, which I think is the idea. Sure. We're true soulmates, but the world contrives to keep us apart over and over. And like Exiles, again, basically opens. It's the second story, but it's pretty early with a Dark Phoenix saga revisit. So I just think that that's kind of what's going on there. And that's why it does, in fact, end tragically, because there's really no other way it could end. And it's the kind of story, unlike Scott and Jean, where because these aren't really ongoing characters, you could actually kill them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they've tried, they tried to kill Jean a couple times and it just never stuck because she was in the main continuity. Two more questions, both from people named Margot. First, friend of the pod Margot Mutter writes, Oh, and by the way, people listening, you should check out the new podcast, Out to Get You. It's a new queer horror podcast hosted by friends of the pod Margot Mutter and Rebecca Galt from the Lila Cheney and Wolfsbane episodes, respectively. Yeah, yeah. 
and they're brilliant, brilliant gals. And I am very excited to listen to that podcast. I haven't had a chance to listen to the first episode yet, but it just dropped. But anyway, so Margot writes, Dear Connor and Chatter, crossover kings. Wow, yes, Calvin, give us nothing. I was never an Exiles gal. <laughs> so it took me until I sat down to write this to remember that Exiles wasn't even 616 Mimic, but rather the Calvin Rankin of Earth-12. So really, what a flop. Two questions. <laughs> Firstly, thinking back on the early days of the Children of the Adam, it strikes me that many times you'd see mutants with great power struggle from mental illness or physical disability. Both Lorna and Calvin have since come to be known to modern readers as characters who live with bipolar mood disorder. Not to mention that before his character-defining retcon, 60s Magneto was no poster child for healthy depictions of mental health. The list just goes and goes. While these facets of their characters have certainly gained more nuance in modern depictions, both in evolving from their once atomic-powered origins as well as the advancements of our understanding of behavioral science, what do you think it says about the way we reconcile the compound traumas that tend to affect marginalized people? Lorna struggled and even saw firsthand the horrors of genocide, but became a late-blooming star, whereas Cal's languished in the background as a benchwarmer and guest star threat or joke, depending on the story. His own big moment in publication wasn't even himself. It was an alternate version. While I know there are plenty of reasons why they each went the way they did, it makes me wonder about the fear of neurodivergence and mental illness that is seeded through the history of pop culture, and I was curious as to y'all's thoughts on the matter. So there's another question. There's two more questions. <laughs> she asked a bunch of things, but just to pause on that one first. I think with Calvin, that's less present because the mental illness thing is kind of a retcon in Dark X-Men to explain his inconsistent characterization. Whereas I think that Lorna being a little crazy was kind of always part of the character starting after Malice, at least, like in the 90s. I think Peter David kind of zeroed in on that in examinations and the stories around it. So I think what it is more is, I think there is an interest in women falling into insanity as a trope in a way that with men is more seen as inconvenient and not operatic and sexy in the same way, if that makes sense. Is that crazy? No, no. Like the woman's mad scene in an opera, like women have those scenes. Yeah, Men don't yeah. have them, you know? Even if they're like Macbeth, they don't really, like Lady Macbeth has the mad scene. I'll put on my mental health hat for just a moment. Uh, terms change over the years, right? Like what used to be manic depression is now bipolar. I always go back to like Batman's rogue gallery, who so many of them are like the archetype of a mental illness of some kind, which is really interesting. Uh, writers love to give uh, villains like sociopathy or multiple personality disorder. And when you tie that to superpowers, it's really fun. A lot of villains have like antisocial personality disorder. I do think there's a difference. I think there's a difference when you look at a character's history. Moonstone, for example, actually, to go back, Moonstone is antisocial sociopath. Mm -hmm. And... She's a ton of fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love her. I love her. But you look at Mimic's history and when they did diagnose him with bipolar and the same with Lorna, although I agree less with her, you're trying to make sense of disparaging versions of a character. That's this character has been written really inconsistently and we're finding a way to explain that in the story. Right. So it's then it's then a disorder that he lives with that he's that now fuels the understanding of the character. And I actually like those types of stories. Well, listen, it's like making Bobby gay. It wasn't on purpose, but it explains his behavior. No, it's like, it is a thing. It's a retcon that works. And I think similarly, this is a retcon that really works. But every character has PTSD. 
And that's the thing with you know, a superhero, superhero comic. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and in real life, significant childhood trauma can influence the development of things like antisocial personality disorder in adulthood, but not necessarily. So we we love a hero story in the real world when someone overcomes their trauma and rises above. And we love the same thing in our superhero fiction. But we also want to see our characters fail and struggle. So when you give them mental illnesses, it's an interesting thing to see them grapple with it, right? Uh, so I, I could go on on that for a long time. But the, the, the real application applications of mental health in comic books is fascinating to me. She then says, P.S. If there's time, Chad, what was your favorite part of writing Marvel handbooks and what makes them special to you? As someone who loved reading old back issues with cutaway diagrams and random splatterings of assorted handbooks, they gave me a sense of depth that didn't always make it onto the page. Something we now have more of with the advent of the data page in the Krakoa era. And what would you all like to see more of if they dropped a Krakoan age handbook? Okay, I'm done. I promise. Long-winded and lovingly, Margot Mutter. I'm not going to answer the question about a Krakoa handbook because if they want a Krakoa handbook, they should pay me and Chad to write it. <laughs> Marvel, if you're listening. We would do it, absolutely. I love researching. It. They did do the uh, the Ten of Swords handbook that mm -hmm, came out mm -hmm. during that event, but it was that was a little one. It was just like, if you've never heard of Megan, here's who that character, like it was to explain some of the Captain Britain and Excalibur stuff mostly. I love researching and I love putting together a database. I made a whole documentary. I had to put like a giant suction of like history over years for a lot, lots of people. I love building the database and I love analyzing it. So that part of me comes alive when I do my show or when I got to write all the handbooks. But the single best part about being on the handbooks was I got to read all of Marvel's scripts three months in advance because I had to see what That's characters pretty were showing up. Cool. So I yeah. always knew what was coming. And I also got to see a lot of different writing styles, reading the actual scripts and seeing how people were putting together and like what the plans were was so fucking fun. The nerdiest thing I did at Marvel, and I'll be quick here, is I wrote their postage stamp campaign. <laughs> I got to be Willie Lumpkin and write like all the character profiles for the people who were appearing on stamps. And it's such a it's such a silly thing to uh to like have as a claim to fame, but and nobody knows. But it was it was just fun to like really delve into my nerd side. And this was during my closeted years. So Marvel for me at the time was my escape from reality professionally. And then I came out and everything changed. I just Google searched Willie Lumpkin because I was so sure that he would have tragically died at some point. Nope. He's still and, around. Uh, no, he's still around. He must be like 120 at this point. He also he also has a hot niece version named Wilhelmina Lumpkin. <laughs> Good for her. Love that for her. The yassification of Willie Lumpkin. <laughs> Willie Lumpkin is the Fantastic Four's mailman for people who are not familiar. Fantastic Four, right? Or Avengers or both? He's the mailman. He's that guy. He's the old guy. Stan Lee played him in uh, the Fantastic Four movie way back in the day as like a cameo. I also got to write two books as Norman Osborn. There was a couple Dark Rain files. The Dark books. Rain handbooks. Yeah. That and I did fun. one as Captain America where I got to write all the entries as if I was Steve Rogers. Those were great. I loved them. That's fun. Last question, also from a Margo, but a different Margo. Hi there. Mimic's a character who really made little impression on me in the stuff I've read, so I'm excited for this episode. I wonder if it could be useful, though, to have a general conversation about the place of dumb, silly, Silver Age X-Men concepts and how we can update them for the present day, if we think that's even worth doing. Things like Mimic or the Xenox or Factor 3 kind of fascinate me, but they're not always good, you know? But maybe they could be. Until Sage, Mimic, and Changeling are officially recognized as members of the original X-Men, make mine Cerebro, Margot. And you're the Silver Age guy, so what do you think? I thought this was a good one to end on. Let me take two, and I could give 30, so I'll keep this brief, I promise. Factor 3, as an example, is really poorly done. Even Roy Thomas thinks so. But 
it's an interesting story because you have a group of mutants who are saying, we're not going to take it anymore. We're claiming our own space and we're going to drive the rest of the world to war so that we can feel important, you know, like have our own world. But they're being manipulated by an alien. Done right? That's a really cool story. Another one that stands out is Grotesque. Grotesque is the guy that killed the changeling. Yeah, who kills Xavier and then they retcon it into, oh, it was the changeling. But for years, it's he killed Professor X. He's a man who is probably a mutant whose civilization was destroyed because humans were experimenting with shit and it wiped out his people and now he's mad about it. And it, there's there's a version of this character that could be done where that's very cool and he's like very tragic. But instead he's the stupid looking Frankenstein guy and the, the pink loincloth who killed Professor X, right? So I think there's a lot of Silver Age stories that could be done very well, but because of its Silver Age, they're done in a silly way. Some characters get reclaimed, others do not. I would say if you haven't, Margot, check out the Kazar mini that Zach Thompson did recently. Mm-hmm. Because the Savage Land is about as stupid and Silver Age as it gets, right? <laughs> but I think that the Savage Land is a place you can tell fun stories and that you could make more resonant with the contemporary zeitgeist and mood. In part by embracing the Silver Ageiness of these things, like I think that you have to kind of lean into it a little bit in order to futz with it. A good example... I've complained about the Astra retcon with Joseph before, but one thing that they do do very well with Astra is she doesn't look like a 60s character, which is a problem I have with Astra, but the way that she talks to all the other characters is very like Silver Age nonsense. So it does feel kind of like she could have been there, the way she's pontificating and stuff. So that's what, like, it's like Doctor Doom. Like, Doctor Doom is the most Silver Age villain to me, but he works still and always has worked with some exceptions of like stories that are just bad but like no character has only good stories but like Doctor Doom is just as fun today as he was in the 60s but it's because you lean into how fucking stupid Doctor Doom is like in a lot of ways that are fun like with the Doom bots and the castle in Latveria and like all of that silliness I actually think a good example is Charlie Jane Anders is using Count Nefaria right now in a way that's really funny that stuff I think is very doable and the flip side the flip side of that is look at the characters who were dumb originally who are super cool now juggernaut looks like a potato in his first appearance he's like dig dugging his way through the x i don't know i think he's really cool <laughs> in that first story i do but they've really made this an incredible character right and 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 a lot of the characters have never had that chance i mean magneto is the big like claremont made magneto a real character he wasn't in the 60s like there are certain things that work and and i think that it's worth I don't know that we need to see the Zanox, but like, I think that there are certain things. I would love to see like an Unus the Untouchable story, maybe with Unus Shone and Blob and like, you could do stuff. It's just a matter on some level of like, why do stuff when that's not the X-Men era that most people are nostalgic for. The X-Men era that people are most nostalgic for is the 90s. And if it's not the 90s, then it's late 70s, early 80s, right? So there is a there is a Zanox story though, because Professor X, the way he defeated that race was by making them feel compassion. They're this warlike race, and then they tossed him into another dimension. They did. They could pop back out anytime. I would love to see Lucifer back. I know he's not a great character, uh, but I feel like they could do some cool stuff with him. I he's don't. the guy that he's the guy that paralyzed Professor X. I know, know, but I don't think there's more to that story that makes it good. <laughs> I think that story is just bad. I'm sorry. It's just not good. <laughs> it's not for me. Sorry. Not my favorite. I think Grotesque of the Subhuman is a good shout. I don't think he's a mutant, but I think that that makes him interesting in his own way because I think he's like maybe a different subspecies and it's sort of 
then it becomes like an intra marginalized community like battle kind of thing that I think could the way that like if it had been done at all well in humans versus X-Men could have been interesting. Yeah, yeah. I actually I really love the stranger. I really love Cobalt Man. I really love Kukulkan. I would love to see more of the stranger. The stranger is great in Nisiesa's X-Men Forever from 2000. There's just a lot you could do with a lot of that weirdness. I wouldn't be shocked if The Stranger is part of Hickman's gods. The single worst 60s X-Men villain is Meccano. <laughs> you can go He's look him bad. up on your own. He's terrible. He's not great. <laughs> I wouldn't mind if if um now that Scott and Jean are having marital problems, what if Ted, the Cobalt Man's brother, shows up and like takes Jean on a date? I think that would be really funny. Scott was just trying to fuck Emma at a recent yeah, issue. Yeah, no, right? I no, think maybe no. Gene should get some of that cobalt dick. <laughs> it's been a minute, and she deserves some fun, I think. <laughs> well, Chad, is there anything else you'd like to say about Mimic before we wrap up? Uh, no, I don't think so. I just want to say how wonderful this has been. I, I really respect you and admire your big brain and your huge heart, and I'm glad we're friends, and this was such an honor to come on your show and just laugh for five hours. Thank you. I had a great time today. This was super fun. Thank you for joining me. It's fun to switch, because you've had me on as a guest so many times. It's fun to be like, and now we're in my house, Chad. <laughs> we're going to play by my rules. No, it was fun. It was a good time. And this was a great character to do it with because he's so silly, but there is like fun stuff to pick apart here. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you online and plug anything you want to plug? Obviously, there's the podcast, but anything else? Yeah, I've got, uh, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos. But if you would like to follow me online on the podcast, uh, I'm at Gray Malkin PP Like Podcast on Twitter, uh, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. That's Gray Malkin with an A. Yeah, G R A Y M A L K I N. It's the street the X-Mansion's on, if you're not familiar. And the reason I named this podcast that is uh, my, my I do a lot of queer analysis. And the X-Men leave their families and form a home. So it's all about found family, which I create every episode with new people. Uh, I'm putting out five episodes a month, four issue reviews with professional interviews and one character trial. I also have a Patreon. I'd love it if you'd follow. If you'd like to follow any of my personal work, I have published two books. One is called The Mushroom Murders. It's a graphic novel. One is called Gay Mormon Dad, which is my memoir. Uh, both are available on Amazon. And I'm currently adapting Gay Mormon Dad into a graphic novel format. And the art has started to come in, and I love it. That's so exciting. I also made the movie Dog Valley, which is available through a YouTuber Amazon Prime about a hate crime here in Utah. Uh, that was my huge project that I worked on for years before the pandemic. So if you'd like to look at any of that stuff, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd love to hear from you anytime. Feel free to reach out. And definitely check out Gray Malkin Lane if you haven't. I don't cover the Silver Age material that often on this show just because most of the characters we're talking about didn't exist yet. So it's not, <laughs> it just doesn't come up as often. And Chad has really paid loving attention to to all of that stuff and i'm on like five episodes of it so yeah check yeah those out at least if you're a fan of cerebro we're in the middle of the hidden years and the early 2000s stuff which is set in the early continuity but by this fall we will be in the early 70s run building toward giant size so it's really fun taking my time getting there uh it's been a blast being part of this podcast community thank you everybody for the support you can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the Discord server, the merch store, and much, much more at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier at Patreon.com slash CerebroCast, you can get ad-free versions of every episode the moment they come out, plus exclusive access to the secret files, bonus episodes, including the Claremont 
marathon, which is back. Thank you for your patience on that. We're back and we're rolling and I'm excited to be on pace with that read-along project again. The Patreon is also home to the Cerebro Appendix on characters who aren't quite major enough for their own episodes. The most recent one of those is an episode with Jordan Blanc on Gossamer of the New Mutants, but there's a couple more funny ones coming down the pipe. And soon I will be launching the series Worrying About It, about complicated continuity tangles. The first episode of that will be about the Black Womb Project, which we mentioned earlier in the episode. Please check out the Patreon, $5 a month. It is the thing that keeps this show going. So if you love what I do, I really appreciate it. Next week's episode will feature returning guest Patrick Sullivan on Trish Tilby, reporter to the stars, problematic ex-girlfriend of Hank McCoy. I love her. (laughs) (laughs) Questions are closed for that, but are open for the four episodes to follow with Anna Peppard on Amanda Sefton, Anthony Oliveira on Kane Marco the Juggernaut, Alex Abad Santos on Laurie Collins, Wallflower, and Annalise Bissa on Arcade. Send your questions to Cerebrocast at gmail.com. I was watching Chad's reactions because he has to uh, the announcement for yes, those. Yes, I'm like, yay! <laughs> yeah, those are pretty good, right? I know all four of those people now, and I'm wildly excited for all of those episodes, but Arcade is one of my all-time favorite villains. That's I love That's going to be fun. So excited. That's going to be fun. He is such a fucking Looney Tune. As always, thank you so much for your support. And until next time, everybody, bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is 